You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 539. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. Your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at former APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 6th of October, 2022. In today's episode, hurricane hunters flying through Hurricane Ian say They've never experienced anything like it. Investigators update their probe into the three-year-old fatal crash of a Kazakhstan airliner just after takeoff. More news and your feedback. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger and Flight 539 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He's an award-winning TV and radio reporter, currently at the number one all-news station in the nation. 10-10 wins in New York City! Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great questions and feedback. Also, joining me today from his studio in Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire. Professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired Airbus A330, A340 captain for Virgin Atlantic Airways, now a Sky Team member, is Captain Nick. Uh, hi there, Jeff. And uh, in accordance with uh, Virgin Atlantic's new dress code, I uh, have a skirt on. Oh, I saw that. Oh, I hope that we get to talk about that. Or maybe not. No. Also, no. Okay. And uh, also joining us from a place to stand and a place to grow. It's retired financier and aviation enthusiast, spreadsheet master, and our producer. It's Liz Piper from Ontario, Canada. Good day, everyone. Specifically, Toronto, Ontario. That's the place. That's where I am. Yep. Oh, so nice to have you with us, Liz. Also, we're expecting uh, Nick Camacho to join us while the show is in progress. And also, we'll be joined virtually, uh, sort of, uh, in time delay uh, mm-hmm. from Miami Rick. Miami uh, Rick's going to be time traveling. Yep. Yes, he is. All right. And, okay, and you boy. and I are well, as well. If he's in a if he's in a Boeing, he'll be going backwards in time. <laughs> oh, boy. Here it be goes. Be reversing. Beep, beep, beep. It already starts. <laughs> Bye. Bye. skirt. I love it. Stand by for news. All right, let's do this item in our news segment. Um, 1A, flying into Hurricane Ian. Now, this is topical. This just happened. Uh, I think it's finally uh, been degraded to a tropical storm. It's kind of uh, petering out a bit. Uh, but it made two separate landfalls here in the U.S., Hurricane Ian. Uh, the strongest approach was to the west coast of Florida, 
and uh, it was uh, a category four, a very strong uh, category four as it made landfall. And it just basically destroyed many communities on the west coast of Florida. Um, it looks like Fort uh, Fort Myers Beach yeah, or Estero Fort Myers Island was like uh -huh. the kind of the, the most badly affected. Um, but, uh, you know, we've heard about the hurricane hunters. Uh, the uh, U.S. Air Force Reserve has a, uh, some C-130s specially outfitted to uh, do hurricane hunting. And the National Oceanic Atmospheric uh, Administration, NOAA, also has a couple of airplanes. I'm not sure how many they have, but uh, they're basically, what, Rick, you said they were like P3. Like P3 Orions. Yeah, P3 Orions. Orions. Okay. The, uh, the, the Navy used to use them for anti-submarine warfare um, before they uh, transitioned uh, fully to the P8 Poseidon. Uh, yeah. It's um, a 737 uh, NG platform, but uh, but NOA still uses a P3s, which is a, it's a fantastic airplane. Apparently, it's uh, based off of the uh, Lockheed Electra. So you're talking 1950s um, uh, airframe uh, technology. So, um, mm -hmm. and I know a couple. You know, a good friend of mine uh, went to the Naval Academy with my brother. Um, he was commissioned a naval aviator and uh, went on to fly P3s, and he he, he liked it uh, uh, better than uh, the P8. So it says he flies mm -hmm. like a dream. Well, Lockheed makes a great product. I've flown a couple of them. and uh, Lucky, lucky. Yeah. Uh, so we uh, have this from, uh, let's see, what, do you, what does he call himself, uh, Liz? Uh, Underwood. His last name's Underwood. Underwood. Yeah. Uh, Tropical uh, Nick Underwood. Nick Underwood, yep. Yeah. And uh, we have a couple of tweets from him. He's uh, on the crew of uh, one of these, I don't know if they call them hurricane hunters at the NOAA, but... He was aboard Kermit, uh, which was number uh, November Oscar Alpha Alpha 42. And we have uh, where he took some video of how, let's see, well, first of all, he tweeted, when I say that this was the roughest flight of my career so far, I mean it. I've never seen the bunks come out like that. There was coffee everywhere. I have never felt such lateral motion aboard Kermit NOAA 42 this morning into Hurricane Ian. Please stay safe out there. So let me uh, play a little bit of that video. If I can navigate over here to that window. Okay, here we go. I'm going to add it to the stream and here we go. Kermit. Getting bounced around. Some nervous laughter. <laughs> They had, to, they had to blank out with that guy was saying. We're all right. We're all right. So it's the back end of this thing with all the instrumentation and all the meteorologists. Oh, there goes the signs. There goes the beds. There goes the bed. Holy cow. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of side-to-side -side, uh, motion going on. Not smooth. Oh. A lot of smiling going on, as I said, Rick. I think that laughter that we hear might be a little nervous. You got it coming out of this. Fast forward 
to see if there's any other good stuff here. That just looks like a lot of bouncing around. That's that's die. That's Nick. Wow. So a little glimpse of some. Uh, yeah, we're good. Lightning out the window there. Wow. <laughs> you know what? That is something I never, ever want to experience. No. You know what? It's uh, we. You know. Jeff and uh, I have uh, weather radar in our aircraft uh, to stay away from stuff like that. It's exactly. amazing that these guys, um, you know, they 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 uh, they go towards it, you know, mm-hmm. in, in the name of uh, figuring out uh, what uh, what's going on with that with weather systems. And I just cannot be in more um, awe of these uh, of these guys and gals that do this kind of work. It's just unbelievable. Um, and it's also a testament to, as you said earlier, uh, Lockheed. Uh, they 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 do uh they do build a good product um and it's mm-hmm. sad that we don't uh, get to fly lockheed airliners anymore um 1011 being the, uh, the the last one around but um yeah it's interesting because um um just a couple of days ago i mean i'm nowhere near what these guys and gals went through but uh, uh coming back from um uh, from germany uh we got a um uh an acars message from the company and then another one from um cpdlc on um from uh, I believe it was no, it was Gander, Gander Radio sent us a message and a, a data link, uh, uplink, telling us about um, uh, severe turbulence uh, possible along our route of flight. Ooh. and uh, in my twenty years of flying, I don't think I've ever experienced severe turbulence because severe turbulence. It's just basically uh, you, you you can't see the instrument panel and you can't control the aircraft. Just you know basically what it goes down to, and uh, when you see something like that come up, there are a couple of things. There's a couple of things that you can do to kind of prepare for that. You know, obviously, first and foremost, make sure that your your uh, your lap belt and your and your and your shoulder harnesses are you know are nice and tight, and then uh, then you have to slow the aircraft down to. Um, um, uh, Turbulent penetration speed, which varies from aircraft to aircraft on the 7.6, so you have to slow down to uh, 0.78 Mach. Uh, and then you turn on your continuous ignition, uh, because remember that uh, jet engines, um, the hot portion of the jet engine, it, it doesn't, uh, once you have combustion going, the, the, the very heat is enough to keep combustion going. But if you're going to be flying through, you know, severe turbulence or any kind of uh, airflow that might disturb or, uh, or, or uh, you know, impede uh, the uh, smooth airflow of uh, uh, through the combustion chamber of the engine. It's important. It's, you know, it's, it's, it behooves you to turn the continued ignition on. And that's basically all that is. is you're, it's, like, it's like turning on the spark plugs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, you, you, you turn those on and you slow the airplane down and you just basically, you know, you're, <laughs> you're kind of along for the ride there. Thankfully, it wasn't it wasn't too bad. So I'm, I I wonder, there's got to be some kind of procedure that these guys go through uh, to brace the uh, the aircraft and prepare the aircraft to fly through something as severe as that. And again, um, just my hats off to these to these fellas because the work they do is just unbelievable. That was my question. Do do these planes have any um, special like strengthening or anything that that they that's been applied to them, or are they just as they came off the production line? Oh no, no. I'm sure. I'm sure they. I'm sure they are. They're. Uh, they're um, structurally s- strengthened for this kind of for this kind of work. Um, 
Also, uh, as, as I said earlier, uh, anytime you're going to fly through rough air, uh, you have to slow down to turbulence penetration speed, which, as I said, depends. Uh, it, it, it varies from airplane to airplane. Like I said, this, the 7.6 was 0.78. On the, on the 7.47, turbulence penetration speed was 0.85 Mach. So that tells you the kind of, wow. this kind of speeds that the 7.47 flies at. Um, and um, and really, really all it is is that uh, you want to reduce the stresses on the airframe as much as possible. And you do that by, same as when you're, when you're you know, driving over an unprepared road, you know, you kind of slow your car down because you don't want to be hitting those potholes at, you know, 80 miles an hour and doing all kinds of damage to your cars. Same deal with airplanes. And you don't want that, uh, that darn fire back there in that engine to get blowed out. No. <laughs> no, you don't. That you definitely don't. Nope. Yep. So that's, uh, that's interesting. Very, very interesting. Yeah. And, you know, it's not a coincidence in my mind that uh, the airplanes that are used presently, at least in the U.S., for getting, you know, close to and inside of and through the walls of hurricanes, some of the most violent weather on Earth, are both made by that company, Lockheed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's not only the airplane, but you also uh, think about the uh, the uh, Allison turboshaft engine that uh, mm -hmm. that's uh, – um, not sure about the P3, but I know for a fact that the SC-130 has you know, some variation or another of an Allison turboshaft. And if they don't, I'm sure I'm going to be corrected. And if you know if, if I'm wrong, please you know, let me know. No, but, don't let uh, us know because don't let him know because he's very he has very thin. Skin. I have very He'll thin skin. Very upset. Exactly. <laughs> all my all my landings are perfect, and that you know I don't want to hear it otherwise. <laughs> exactly. Um, so. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it, it it makes it makes sense that uh, you'd be uh, you'd be flying with um, um, uh, big um, uh, turbo props and uh, yep. and uh, having you know you have that big prop up front there because it's it, I I'd, I'd imagine it'd be a little a little tricky trying to keep a smooth flow of air going through the uh, through the engine when you have uh, mm. um, convective activity and turbulence of that magnitude trying to keep combustion going would be a little a little tricky yeah. I'd, I'd imagine. Definitely more more hearty power plants than absolutely uh, like regular like high bypass jet engines. I don't think they'll be quite as as uh, reliable in those conditions. No, no. All right, yeah. Plus, you wouldn't want to be going a lot faster. You know, you want to be probably going as slow as you can to go through all that crap. Mm -hmm. I would imagine. Anyway, okay, good. Here we are uh, live, or at least at this moment, <laughs> we are live. That was recorded on Saturday evening. Uh, Liz and Miami Rick and I were able to get together and uh, cover a couple of items. And uh, we'll get caught up with Miami Rick uh, when we do our Getting to Know Us segment. But uh, anything that you want to add or say, uh, Nick, regarding... Oh, only a couple of comments okay. about the Orion, really. Yeah, he's right. It's... Uh, uh, Allison turbo props uh, that power the Orion. The Orion um, was renowned, and I only get this from my uh, reading uh, and a couple of accident reports that I've run through, of having very stiff um, wings. So um, I wouldn't have thought it was the ideal airplane necessary to put through uh, the wall of a hurricane because a lot of that turbulence will be transmitted directly through to the fuselage whereas if you look at the average modern airliner the wings flap up and down like a manic seagull um, because uh, they're built uh, a lot more 
with a lot more flex in them. And that's one way to reduce the amount of turbulence that you feel in the uh, center of the, around the center of gravity of the aircraft. Um, whereas if you've got a, a very rigid wing like the P3, uh, then you know all that gets transmitted uh, down to the, to the fuselage. Um, uh, other than that, I was just going to comment on my personal experience. I mean, uh, the, the airline uh, almost... Uh, exclusively uh, you'll find almost every aircraft you fly will be stressed to plus two and a half and let me think minus ooh, two or minus one that's probably minus two um g um and uh you know if you go through a lot of turbulence it's quite easy to build up those g's in in the form of big jolts uh, I've had 30 minutes of solid severe turbulence during a transatlantic crossing. Uh, part of a line check, would you believe? Mm. The turbulence was so severe, we couldn't actually uh, do anything on the flight deck, like move any switches or press any buttons, because uh, as soon as you tried to move your hand away from the controls, your arms just flapped up and down. You couldn't be sure what you were going to press. Hit yourself in the head. <laughs> well, you could. You, you like had to hold your <laughs> brace your hand if you wanted to press button we we need to we got to reroute and uh we literally uh, it took me 10 minutes perhaps to type in the reroute because my fingers kept moving around the keyboard hitting the wrong keys as i was trying to and that was bracing my hands and doing all, and we had to get the guy to read out the read route several times because you couldn't write it down because your handwriting was just a scribbly mess on the paper because you kept moving around. But the, the worst turbulence I've ever had was probably low-flying in a, in a military fast jet. Uh, the Hawk, because of its uh, low wing loading, was particularly susceptible. And if you're on a, a windy day uh, flying around the mountains in Scotland, you could hit up drafts and down drafts that might uh, you know produce three or four g on mm -hmm. the g meter uh, as you went through one of those uh, lumps and bumps and it would be like a huge jolt it could bang your head on the uh, top of the even though you're tightly strapped in onto the the top of the canopy or could really hurt your spine um and uh, you know partly because of our high speed you know we're trying to do a 420 or uh, 500 knot uh, low-level navigation exercise and at times you just had to throw it away because it was too dangerous to to uh, continue but uh, that's that kind of military flying uh, is, is not the same sort of thing as you get in a, in an airliner you know you mentioned you know the trying to do things uh, I don't know if it was a touchscreen control that you were trying to type things into or or what? Oh, just a standard McDo with buttons. Okay. <laughs> it was oh, so you had nearly buttons, impossible. So I was going to say, you know, I've noticed uh, since we've gone, you know, switched from paper JEPs to uh, EFBs, uh, you know, on a, a typically an iPad, uh, that when you get into turbulent air uh, or bumpy air, uh, even, you know, like slightly bumpy air, it, sometimes it's kind of tough to make sure you're touching the right place on the touch screen. And that's one of those things where, I, I'm kind of happy that I'm flying this old school kind of airplane because uh, most of our major controls on the jet are still, you know, like the the physical switches, and uh, that's that's kind of nice to have. But 
Yeah. The yeah. the early generation of uh, airliners that had built-in computers, uh, they often had a sort of a, a hand grip with then a thumb wheel or yeah. a, a, oh, yeah, a four-directional thumb control that allowed you to hold on tight and then just use your thumb to motor mm -hmm. a cursor around, which is not a bad way of going, uh, just in case you're in turbulence. But modern generation are going to go towards those touch screens, and you've got to think about what you're going to do if the airplane is really bouncing around. They, they become almost unusable. Mm -hmm. True, true. Okay. Well, let's move on to the second item in our new segment. Uh, this is a 1B, uh, an NOK. I, I think it's maybe a knock or a noke. Not sure. Oh, yeah. Um, mini, uh, or is it is the airline noke mini, a Saab 340. I don't think it's a mini Saab. <laughs> a Saab 340B <laughs> uh, registration uh, Hotel Sierra Golf Bravo Golf, performing flight 8610 from Chiang Mai to Udon Thani, Thailand, with uh, 25 passengers and three crew landed on Udon Thani's runway 30 at 8.45 local time, taxied off the runway via taxiways Charlie, and was able to turn right onto taxiway November when, due to hydraulic failure, the nose wheel steering and the brakes failed. The aircraft came to a stop with all wheels off of the taxiway with the nose gear collapsed. No injuries occurred. The aircraft received substantial damage. The airline initially reported a glitch with an engine, and then they later said, however, that the aircraft had already slowed to taxi speed and was taxiing along the taxiways when the aircraft's hydraulic nose wheel steering malfunctioned. Um, let's see, the airport reported that the aircraft had landed normally on runway 30 and had vacated the runway on the taxiway Charlie, but failed to turn right onto taxiway November towards the terminal, came to a stop on soft ground. Anyway, uh, that occurred back in uh, 2013, quite quite a number of years ago, and I'm not sure if we talked about this or not on our show. That was just too long ago. I hardly remember what happened a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> uh, but we can uh, tell you that finally on September 12th of this year, uh, the final report surfaced. On dun, 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 dun. Well, did on they have to wait for everyone to retire before they <laughs> maybe i don't know uh <laughs> that's interesting so maybe it's been out there for a while but uh, uh simon found it on an unofficial resource of thailand's ministry of transport concluding that the probable causes of this accident were uh both pilots did not follow the abnormal procedures in the aircraft operations manual to solve the hydraulic system malfunction when the single chime came on several times during the flight. Until commencing the holding, the pilots performed the abnormal procedures on hydraulic fluid loss, but not completely and correctly. After landing, the pilot taxied the aircraft from the runway to the apron. During that time, the nose gear uh, steering and brake systems were inoperative because hydraulic pressure in two accumulators decreased until unable to supply to those two systems. Subsequently, the pilots were unable to control the direction and stop the aircraft. So... Um, there's a lot of uh, a lot of narrative here, but basically, when they knew something was, they should have known something was not quite right. When they were starting up the engines to begin with, before they started this whole flight sequence, they had that single chime, and they kind of hinted that it, there's something not right, but they kind of ignored it and continued with all their checklists and took off. 
and then in flight uh, several times during the flight. I think a total of seven times. I'm I'm trying to recall the exact number, uh, but uh, they they got these chimes and they finally realized that there was something wrong with their hydraulic system, and apparently they didn't uh, bother to perform the correct checklist item and not only that but they kind of stopped in the middle of it and didn't complete the checklist items and didn't seem too concerned about the fact that there was something wrong with the hydraulic system on this airplane um Nick, did you have a chance to look at this? Um, well, I, I I I did, and I am looking at it now, and it seems to me that it might have been a, a transient problem because they they both pilots expressed doubtfulness of the malfunction occurred. Mm-hmm. So, you know, pigeon English, but uh, it sounds like uh, they were getting a warning, but perhaps the hydraulic system was recovering its pressure. So when they looked down at the gauges, they might have been indicating the correct pressure, but uh, so they began to doubt exactly what the problem was, or perhaps, oh, perhaps, perhaps I didn't see that after all. Um, but uh, it, you know, it it is, does put a little doubt in your mind if you get a transient problem and it goes away. Do I do the checklist or do I not? Having mm. having said that, when it's happened multiple times, eventually you've got to go right. You know, even if we end up turning this hydraulic system off, it's probably best to get it into a situation where we're not going to have an unexpected failure. Uh, so uh, why don't we just do the drill now? Mm-hmm. Um, but apparently they, they didn't want to, and then they just continued to ignore it. Uh, I've heard of it happening in, you know, with uh, other aircraft types. Uh, there There is a classic button on the Airbus, which if you get a continual failure and it becomes annoying, you can do emergency cancel. You lift a guard, and when it comes, that failure happens again, you press the emergency cancel button, and that um, deletes it, that stops it from reoccurring for the rest of that flight. Hmm. Um, and in, I've heard of pilots doing that for what it turned out to be a genuine failure, <laughs> just because it Yikes. was happening over and over again, and they were getting annoyed by it. Yeah. They decided to cancel it and ignore it. Well, you can't, you can't do that. Oh, you know, you've got, you've got to assume they, that it's real unless you've got a really solid um, understanding uh, and and proof from another source, perhaps, that there is nothing wrong with the aircraft. So, you know, I don't have a lot of sympathy with these guys and the fact that it eventually failed uh and then they of course they still had that pressure providing nose was steering and braking from their accumulators and yet uh, and they must have had accumulator pressure indicators i would have thought or at least uh, perhaps accumulator pressure warning certainly all the airbuses i flew did so as they depleted you know you must have got an idea that things aren't going right Apparently not. Uh, after, let's see. Regarding the uh, cockpit voice recorder data of the accident flight, the single chime came on for seven times. Also, the conversations between the pilots after each warning mentioned about hydraulic system malfunction. <laughs> During holding, mm. after the fourth single chime came on, the pilots solved hydraulic system malfunction by following the abnormal procedures in the AOM. Oh, okay. All seven single chime warnings must be a caution of the hydraulic system. After the co-pilot landed the aircraft, the pilot taxied the aircraft from the runway to taxiway Charlie. 
At that moment, the co-pilot suggested to the captain twice to use auxiliary system by selecting hand pump first. Then the co-pilot suggested to park and tow the aircraft, but the pilot insisted on waiting. Uh, the co-pilot informed the controller about the problem that caused the aircraft to stop at the present position, and the controller acknowledged. During that time, the aircraft stopped for a moment, then moved backwards before coming to a stop, moved forwards again until passing the intersection between Charlie and November. The aircraft veered okay, and hit a concrete base of uh, some lighting, uh, lighting sign, I think. The pilot taxied the aircraft from the runway, uh, which did not comply with the after-landing procedure indicated in the abnormal procedures. Oh, boy. That specified caution, quote, do not taxi into ramp area or crowded areas with a faulty hydraulic pump. And a note, during taxiing with non-functional hydraulic pump, use nose wheel steering and brakes with great care. The functions will be abruptly lost. <laughs> That's no good. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> now, you'd think the captain oh, must, have been like, must have been a, like a really uh, a newbie, a rookie or something, right? Not With not much um, experience. Well, well, you'd be wrong. 30,506 hours total time. Holy moly, that's a lot of time. (laughs) He's 64 (laughs) years old, uh, airline transport pilot license. Ah, well, perhaps he was was already retired. Yeah, Yeah, he he was just thinking, I've only got to get this through these last few months. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah, that could be it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I thought that was interesting. They didn't do well. It is actually. Very sad. Uh, yeah. And just shows how easily, uh, you know, you can let things get away from you if you don't follow the drills. So true. So true. And uh, hmm, let's see. I think um, the next one is uh, item C, a Beck Air Fokker 100 registration UPF1007 performing flight. 2100 from Almaty, Almaty, I always Almaty. get this wrong, Almaty, to Nur Sultan, uh, Kazakhstan, with uh, 93 passengers and five crew, departed Almaty's uh, runway five right at 721 local time and lost, and this was back when, 2019, December. So, uh, yeah. I think cold. we might have covered this. Yeah, we did cover this, Liz, you're correct. Um, it went shortly after it had occurred. Um, but I guess they have some investigation material for us to uh, look at here. Uh, let's see. They lost height shortly after departure, impacted the ground, broke through a concrete wall and fence, and impacted a building. No fire broke out. The aircraft broke into several sections. 66 people were taken to the hospital with particularly extreme critical injuries. 13 including two of the initial survivors, were confirmed to have perished. 30 people remained in hospital care. 56 people survived with no or minor injuries. Um, so basically, the crux of this accident uh, has to do with this, the suspicion that conditions were very, very um, favorable for icing. And uh, I thought it was quite interesting, uh, Captain Nick, that the uh, they mentioned that the crew, and I'm, I'm scrolling through here to see if I can find the actual narrative, but basically uh, this particular airline had a, uh, a habit or a, a very bad habit of not even doing exterior inspections on the aircraft. And the, so no walk around basically uh, performed on this. And I think the captain 
told the de-icing crew to de-ice the tail and some other part of the aircraft, but not the wings. Ah, where was he going to get all his lifts from then? Uh, good question. Uh, <laughs> turns out he didn't get much lift from the wings. Probably not. And uh, they do. They did um, have a uh, the the investigatory uh, agency produced a uh, video, which I think uh, will be uh, good to play here. And I'm not sure. I don't think it had any um, sound to go with it. Let's find out here. Um, this is okay. Yeah, doesn't sound like any sound. So it's showing the uh, Fokker 100 on its initial takeoff run. And we're seeing some of the uh, flight instrumentation. We're also looking at the computer-generated view of the aircraft behind and to the right, it uh, speeding down the runway. Right now, they're at about 120 knots, 130, 140 knots, 100. And right now, they're starting their uh, rotation, rotating to about 15 degrees nose high, uh, Okay, now it says stall. So the aircraft's in the stall, hits the tail, hits the left wing. Uh, it's still trying to stall. Have they stopped the uh, aborted the takeoff? No, they're they're still keep, they're still going. Uh, the nose now is at twenty degrees nose high, and the speed is still about one hundred and forty knots. Um, and it's it's become airborne a little bit, and now the nose comes up, and then it goes back into a stall again. Hits the tail wow. and then goes off the end of the runway and then just starts sliding to the right of the extended runway center line. And then here's some actual video we're going to see. There we go. And it's sliding and hits this building. And then the uh, oh, tape stops. Uh, here's some aftermath of the uh, accident. You can see most of the fuselage to the left and the, uh, the front part of the fuselage. Uh, here on um, this particular, nope, I guess that's it. Um, there you go. Thank you, Liz. On the slides, that's the uh, front part, the fuselage, uh, the cockpit area, and the first several seats. Um, and uh, you can see why uh, 11 passengers died and the two pilots. The, the captain, I think, died pretty much instantly uh, by hitting this uh, structure. I think the co-pilot actually survived, was in the hospital, and was released. And then at some point, not long after he had been home, he uh, had a, I think he had a heart attack or some kind of an issue and then died. Um, wow. Uh, what a mess. Um, it's it just uh, striking to me that um, they, they didn't think that it was an important thing to make sure that the aircraft was clear, uh, completely clean. I don't know if the the agency that uh, handles all of the regulations for this airline, if they have the same sort of thing that the ICAO and, and uh, the FAA have as far as that clean aircraft concept. Uh, but obviously, uh, the wings uh, were not de-iced. They were not clean. And that's what happens when you don't have lift and you continually attempt to try to make the airplane fly when it's just not going to fly. Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. Uh, yeah, the... 
presence of uh, snow and ice on the wings can deform the surface. It becomes uh, much rougher, uh, and uh, you need to be going considerably faster to generate the same amount of lift as you do off a clean wing, let alone the additional weight you're carrying, all that kind of stuff. So we all know the dangers, or should do, know the dangers of uh, trying to fly with uh, ice and snow. Interestingly, very unlikely this would happen on a Western uh, airfield because, uh, you know, your engineer is usually equally, depends on the country you're in, the regulations, of course, but is usually equally responsible to ensure that the aircraft is free of snow and ice and fit to fly. And certainly in the UK, and I'm certain in the States as well, they have to go through quite a uh, long, complicated uh, course, so they understand uh, the theory behind trying to fly with uh, control surfaces that might have ice on and wings, etc., and uh, how to de-ice and how to recognize a wing that hasn't been properly de-iced, etc. Um, so you, you, we would have expected someone to have piped up on the headset and going, uh, sorry, Captain, your, your wings aren't de-iced. Sometimes those responsibilities are actually handed on to the guys doing the de-icing themselves, depending on the the standards set by that company. You know, if all the guys in the little de-icing camps have taken the right exams and had the right training, they can take that responsibility. But whatever it is, it's not just down to the crew. So if that he tried to do that at Heathrow, I'm almost certain that some would have, would have said, I'm sorry, you just can't fly this airplane in this condition. You've got to finish the de-ice. Mm -hmm. and have a complete de-ice. Um, so that would, wouldn't have happened at one of our airfields, and I'm pretty sure the same in the, in the States. Yep. Uh, as I mentioned before, prior to departure, de-icing was only partially applied. The commander decided to not de-ice the wings. Big problem. There were no aircraft or aircraft system failures. All aircraft systems operated normally. After commencing the takeoff, the aircraft became airborne, began to roll to the right and left or left and right, actually. The left wing touched the runway. The aircraft sank back onto the runway. The first officer called to reject the takeoff and restarted the thrust levers. I'm not sure what he means by that. Restarted the thrust? Maybe retarded. Reset? Or, or maybe maybe even pulled back the, the thrust levers. Yeah. Yeah. The captain called, no need, advanced the thrust levers, and continued the takeoff, stating, let's go, let's go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> Yeah, oh, man. Uh, yeah, that's just sad. I mean, if they had just if if they had rejected at that point, I, they probably would have survived. They may have gone maybe a little bit off the end of the runway, but yep, they'd all be alive. You know. Well, yeah, they'd have probably been past V one uh, because uh, usually the latest V one is at the same point as the rotate. Um, so yeah, he probably too fast to stop, but better to go off the end at thirty knots than a uh, hundred and 30 knots which was probably the speed at which they went mm -hmm. off the end of the runway um so yeah. uh, and there i see a note here that uh that they there is a temporary decrease in both engine n1s which has not been explained i'm wondering if that yeah. is perhaps an attempt to retard the throttles and then mm -hmm. uh, not um yeah, and you, you can see how dire the situation is. The aircraft's just dragging its tail along the ground at some points, and it must have been obvious that they're in a dreadful situation. Uh, but trying to persist, uh, well, yeah. I mean, you, you know, this always brings to mind 
to my mind, the 737 at Potomac mm -hmm. uh, into the river, Potomac at Washington. Uh, and, uh, you know, those guys, they, they were in a similar situation. Their snow and ice had affected their engine um, pressure probes. So they weren't getting uh, enough power out of the engines because those probes were partly... Um, clogged with um, snow and ice and they had failed to put the probe heating on which you're going what the hell mm. um so yeah um that was a, a similar sort of bit you you can see that they, they snagged along at about 50 feet until eventually they uh, they dropped out of the sky in a very similar way to this bloke uh, just not good and and you only have to read an accident report like that old accident of potomac uh, into the river uh, there that uh, before you go well that's not sensible let's not do that right so i do wonder how much attention some pilots pay to things that have happened in the past uh, it's so much better to learn from old incidences and save yourself and interestingly you know one of the crew members maybe both but for sure one of them on that uh, potomac incident uh, felt that something wasn't right it didn't feel like it was accelerating at the normal rate but they just yep. accepted it instead of yeah. and i don't think at any point that they jammed the thrust levers no. forward you know and if no. i think they say that if they had that that would have helped them you know escape this uh, yes they probably would have got away with it yeah yeah i know uh and but they were so worried about, uh, and, like, you know, like hurting the engines, I guess. <laughs> you know? yes. It's one of those human things yeah. where, like, oh, I know that there are limitations to this engine. I can't, you know, I can't push the thrust levers up too yeah. far because I'm going to burn the engines up. Well, yeah, see what happened here. They ended up uh, crashing. Uh, mm. Yeah, I know. Oh, well. Very, very sad. Yes, sad indeed. Um, I hope you don't mind, Liz, but I'd like to skip that um, item D. Yep, sure. And uh, go to this one, which I think is quite in interesting. Um, a senior official at Pakistan International Airlines, PIA, says that he regrets telling flight attendants to wear undergarments in a, <laughs> in a now viral internal memo that criticized cabin crew over their choice of clothing that was creating a, quote, poor impression of the airline. Uh, the uh, general manager, PIA's general manager of flight services, uh, Amir Bashir, uh, now says he regrets his choice of words, which seemingly suggested that flight attendants were regularly going around with no underwear on. <laughs> now, Nick Camacho, I see, has joined us and he's thinking, wow, good timing, huh? <laughs> yeah. Join, yeah. join in progress. And they're talking about right. flight attendants not wearing underwear. He Hello, Nick. How you doing? Hey, good. Yeah. How are you guys? Glad that you can. Oh, we're, we're good. Are you commando today, Nick? <laughs> <laughs> he's not telling. Yeah, he's curious. not going to say. He's not going to uh, say. I'll keep that to myself. <laughs> well, I've already admitted having a skirt. Uh, underwear. You guys can't even tell if I'm wearing pants. No, <laughs> true. I mean, true. yeah. I mean, you can't. I don't. You can't tell uh, any of us are wearing pants, and we may not be. Who knows? But as as Nick mentioned, and maybe he'll expound upon this uh, a bit during the getting to know us segment. Uh, apparently Nick is in, um, in, in, in uh, what's the word I'm looking for in acceptable virgin uniform. Yeah. Like, yeah, he's, he's wearing I an have... acceptable uh, virgin airways uniform. Their, their new <laughs> uniform regulations now require everyone to wear skirts, right? 
(laughs) Or they can. They're allowed to. Anyone. Yes, it's very true. Uh, You can now cross-dress in uh, Virgin Atlantic. At least the crew can. (laughs) So, um, yeah. You can wear whatever suits you. (laughs) Yes. That, that's a possible uh, that's a possible title right there. Pilot in command. Oh, I like it. <laughs> yeah. I like it. I have um, no idea how I'm going to do a picture about that. But. <laughs> I know you. I know you can figure that out. <laughs> uh, anyway, but let's go get back to this um, riveting the, uh, story. This riveting story. Yes, General Manager of Flight Services uh, Amir Bashir. Now says he regrets his choice of words, which seemingly suggested that flight attendants were regularly going around with no underwear on. Despite standing behind the spirit of the memo, Bashir admits that the memo came out with an inappropriate selection of words. I don't think we actually have the memo. I'd like to see it. I'm wondering exactly how inappropriate it was. Um, Let's see. Uh, Great comment from View from the Flight Deck. Oh, View from the Flight Deck in our live audience says, My previous company's employee manual stated that the presence or absence of undergarments shall not be obvious. There you go. (laughs) Yeah, if you're not wearing underwear, just don't make it obvious that you're not wearing underwear. just don't want to (laughs) know. Don't lift up that skirt, Nick. (laughs) Um, Okay. I personally feel regretful, and I am fully convinced that the words could have been more civilized and appropriate in this context instead of words published, which unfortunately are being trolled and twisted towards the defamation of the company. Oh. <laughs> so the whole point was to keep, you know, bad press, you know, away from the company. And instead, it Oops. seems that it had the opposite Oops. effect. Um, what, only days prior... Bashir had admonished flight attendants for dressing, quote, casually during layovers and when traveling to and from work. Such dressing leaves a poor impression on the viewer and portrays a negative image of not only the individual, but also of the organization, the original memo continued. Uh, He said, suggested that the flight attendants dress properly by wearing proper undergarments. I don't know what a proper undergarment is, uh, but that's what he wants. And, uh, oh, and this is not the first time that he is... Uh, ruffled some feathers regarding uh, dress requirements uh, or or uh, uh, appearance, appearance standards. Yeah. Uh, in 2019, another of Bashir's memos made headlines when he ordered overweight flight attendants to lose up to 30 pounds in just six months or face the threat of being grounded or even dismissed. Uh, later the same year, they ordered flight attendants to stop posting photos of themselves in uniform on social media. The order was made after several flight attendants took photos of worn and damaged aircraft cabins and posted them on their socials. Ooh, that's embarrassing. Okay, so. Well, I love that. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because uh, an airline wants to keep keep up uh, opinions uh, on the class of its crew. And um, I'm not quite sure if you're off-duty and wearing what we would term mufti. Um, so you're wearing non-uniform Civvies. clothes. Uh, how the hell are the general public supposed to know that you're a crew member and, uh, you know, you're just a member of the general public? And mm-hmm. what's more, what what say has the airline as to what you dress when you're not on duty? As <laughs> the cheek of this man. Uh, mm-hmm. so there you go. Uh, very cheeky. So it's it's, cheeky. it's uh, backfired on him. Is all I can say. And You're that quite very right being cheeky could have something to do with the inappropriate uh, <laughs> yeah. undergarment selection. Well, there you go. 
<laughs> I mean, quite honestly, uh, we're talking uh, Pakistan here, so they have fairly, uh, they don't have very liberal views on yeah, pretty traditional ladies' society. dress anyway mm -hmm. uh, in that country. True. So, um, you know, I'm a bit surprised about this, but uh, certainly perhaps the cabin crew let their hair down a bit when they go to uh, um, a country with <laughs> less... Which hair are we concern. talking about? <laughs> <laughs> oh, steady That the might buffs. be the problem. <laughs> you need to buff. wear the undergarment. Okay, uh, exactly. it's time yes, to get to know us. Yeah. And right. uh, talking of uh, garments, yep. I perhaps now is an appropriate time to mention that Virgin Atlantic have uh, uh, allowed their crews, and it doesn't specify whether it's flight deck, cabin crew, or both, um, to wear gender appropriate. So it, they decide which gender they're going to identify with, and then they can wear uniform appropriate to that gender. So uh, if you're a, a, a gentleman, uh, or previously perhaps a gentleman who now identifies uh, as a woman, then you would be allowed to wear uh, the what used to be the female uh, cabin crew's dress, so a skirt and a blouse, basically. Having said that, it also allows the um, the females uh, to wear trousers or um, slacks, uh, I don't quite, pants as you call them in yeah, the we, states, yeah, yeah. Say pants. and uh, uh, perhaps a suit, uh, which in the olden days used to be more appropriate for the guys to wear. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, they don't mention specifically what the pilots to, uh, mm -hmm. should wear. Uh, so I, I would I, imagine uh, flying an Airbus, uh, wearing a skirt, um, even a long skirt would be not a problem, right? Uh, in the no, it wouldn't. You're quite right. Now, because uh, the, there's no big stick between your knees. Yeah, that's tell me about it. Um, <laughs> but uh, the the seven uh, the Virgin flies the seven eighty seven, correct? So uh, yes, we do. One uh, could so be a problem, I guess. With could um, be a problem for them now if hmm. they decided to wear a, a skirt. But yep. uh, there were actually uh, on social media, I saw a lot of people saying, well, how could you possibly fly an airplane in a skirt? Well, I'm pretty sure that you can, there are plenty of lady pilots around there and not all of them wear trousers. So mm -hmm. they, they, I would suggest it's quite uh, pr practical, perhaps, in some circumstances to wear a skirt. Just hike it up. The just hike it up around your waist and make <laughs> uh, sure you have yeah, an appropriate... Undergarment. undergarment. <laughs> I don't go. think that's the advice we'd like to have for our airline, Jeff. Okay, well, hiking your skirt up around your waist. I don't know. I I, I can go. <laughs> I, I I can see it. Yeah. Okay. Well, how about the guys then? If they hike their skirt. Well, that's up, what I'm talking you, about. You, you... Oh, okay. Fair <laughs> enough. Okay. Let's see. Uh, view from the flight deck says I may have flown a Cessna 150 in a kilt. Yeah. There you go. That's. <laughs> That's a guy skirt, right? Well, those things are a bit drafty, so I think well, you're being very brave. And I, I, I'm not sure if this is correct or not, but I've heard that the proper wear of a kilt uh, includes uh, zero uh, garments under the uh, under the kilt. Is that true? Well, I I, I heard a famous comment when a lady asked a, a soldier who was wearing a kilt if there was anything worn under his kilt. And he replied by saying, no, madam, it's all in perfect working order. <laughs> I knew you were going there. I love it. <laughs> love it. All right. Well, you know what?
Probably best if we uh, moved on to our Getting to Know Us segment. Getting to know us. Getting to hope you like us. Because we love you guys. Uh, We do appreciate you watching, listening to our show. And this is the time of the show where we kind of uh, talk about, not kind of, we do talk about what everybody has been up to between episodes. And um, let's see. Well, Nick, we haven't heard much from you because you just joined us. Uh, Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Nick Camacho. Mm -hmm. Um, If you uh, don't mind, um, I'd be interested to hearing this as well. Why don't you uh, tell us about what have you been up to since uh, the last time you were on? Yeah. So uh, last time I was on, I think was at the beginning of September. So it's been uh, been that long. A few weeks. Wow. Um, in that time frame, I uh, traveled out to California for work, uh, spent a couple weeks out there, um, and then uh, came home. Uh, let's see. Came home around the 22nd or 23rd and had to uh, turn around and immediately go to Florida. And uh, as you guys discussed earlier, there was a uh, weather situation in Florida. Uh, I was going to the uh, Panhandle area of Florida, but um, around the time I was leaving, they were we were still the area I was going was still in the cone of uncertainty. So um, there, I was getting on the airline with my boss saying, "You know, there's a pretty good chance that uh, I was flying in on Monday." He said, "There's a pretty good chance that we'll have to uh, turn around and fly or drive out on Tuesday, and then come back on like Thursday or Friday," and so. Uh, that sounded like a bit of a bummer. Uh, fortunately, we got in and the, uh, well, fortunately for us, not fortunately for the people on the uh, west coast of uh, Florida, but the storm kept kind of tracking uh, east and east and east and it ended up hitting, uh, making landfall south of Tampa, you know, so Florida's kind of the boot shape and um, it actually ended up hitting, you know, like halfway down the west coast rather than up in the panhandle area. So that uh, didn't affect me um immediately however some of our work was affected because um our very large customer that we work for um let's just say they they're a little they might be a little gun shy from previous hurricane experiences so they uh had a lot of uh hurricane procedures in place um moving a lot of things around so we did get delayed a little bit but i still managed to uh, get home last friday uh and then um, the following day, let's see, Saturday, I flew up to uh, Gardner, Kansas with my dad in the debonair. That was our first uh, trip away from home in the debonair, so that was good. That's my uh, brother's uh, home airport, um, and they have a very active um, vintage aircraft chapter there, which is the uh, an EAA kind of subunit um, for vintage airplanes. And they were hosting a... Uh, fly-in, kind of a informal uh, fly-in to um, because they were done with construction on, on their hangar. They had done a hangar construction project over the summer, and they just finished it up. So we went up there for that, um, saw my brother, saw my nephew and my brother's wife. Uh, airplane flew really well um, going up and coming back. Unfortunately, on the way up um, – my request for flight following was denied. Really? Um, much to the chagrin probably of RH and AG. Yep. 
Um, actually, they just told me to wait because they were pretty busy. Didn't sound that busy, but they were pretty busy coming out of Wichita. It's just a one-hour flight, so um, by the time um, we got out and away from all the Wichita stuff, we just went ahead and flew on in uh, VFR with no uh, no ATC guidance, which I'm, I'm <gasps> sure is a little terrifying to people like Captain Nick, but we did manage to <laughs> um, navigate the airplane all the way to where we were going. Uh, and then did get flight following on the way back. And I only mentioned that because this is the first time that I was able to verify within the whole ATC system. They were seeing my transponder and the ADSB uh, system was working and the radios were working. And so um, it was a good trip. Yeah, we have a picture right now on the video of uh, you and your dad. Oh, yep. Uh, yep. In the debonair. Uh, looks really, really nice. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. Debonair. And then, you know, this summer... Uh, this summer has just been so crazy. Lots of things <clears throat> happening for me and mm-hmm. uh, my family. I just I have not been able to fly very much. So um, I, we, I flew on Saturday and then um, on Sunday I went out and I flew the Luscom. And, uh, and then on Monday I was talking to a couple of my friends and uh, there's some prominent comedians here in the United States that do this thing called Sober October. It's uh, Joe Rogan and Burt Kreischer and um, I think Tom Segura and a couple other guys. But anyway, a couple of my friends were going to do this thing they called uh, or this this Sober October thing, which is basically, you know, they stop drinking for October and they might try to learn a skill or something. And I thought, you know what I ought to do is I ought to try to see now that I've flown the first two days of the month, I ought to see if I can fly how many days in a row through mm. October I can fly and just kind of oh. make it a priority to to do more flying. So uh, I'm up to six days and, um, we'll see, we'll see how it goes, but it's been, uh, a lot of fun and it's kind of reminded me how, uh, how proficient in the airplane I used to be compared to where I am now. Cause some of the stuff that's, that are, that's starting to come back to me, I think back to like when I was, um, you know, 10 years ago when I was flying a hundred or 150 hours a year, uh, and how good I was in the airplane compared to now. Mm-hmm. I'd say I'm safe now, but I would not say that I'm a uh, exceptionally sharp pilot. So I'm going to try to work to get back to that point. Well, they say practice makes perfect. Yep. And that's, yep. and it really is true. Uh, the more time you have and the more recency, uh, you know, it makes you a better pilot, better driver, better. Just like that pilot musician, in the news whatever. story. Just like that pilot in the news story. Well, oh, you're talking the about the one with had... 30,500. Yeah. Okay, well, it doesn't always guarantee, Liz, that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's going to be good. Yeah. Anyway, and I should mention also uh, to uh, thank you, Patreon, uh, patrons at Patreon. Um, one of the ways to uh, support the show financially, uh, one of the perks is that you get to see occasional uh, or hear occasional crew logs and uh, Nick Camacho put one out uh, just a few days ago and uh, it involves uh, your trip with your dad Hector up in the debonair. Yep. Yep. It's good. Excellent. All right. Any big plans in the next, in the upcoming week, uh, Nick, or are you going to kind of just relax a little bit and spend think, the, some yeah. time with your family? Yeah. I think get caught up with family and get caught up around the house. Um, mm-hmm. 
on things that I have not been able to manage the last month or so. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for taking time out today for uh, yeah. to come on and and uh, be with us on the show. All right. Um, Captain Nick, uh, anything, ha have you had any, I don't know, visitors recently or anything going on over there in uh, south, the southwest of London? <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know if I can say really because I might be stealing Steph's thunder. But um, she did pop Steal. over to, uh -huh. the, <laughs> to the United Kingdom to uh, run around London. Uh, which is not something everyone does, but um, a significant number of people were there with her. And I'm going to let her talk about the London Marathon, which um, she said uh, started off uh, a bit wet, and then by the end of it, she was sunburned. <laughs> so mm. <laughs> that was great. But um, Steph and her friend, another doctor, Karen, uh, they um, both completed the Marathon Steph's time was not a record time for her, but uh, well under four hours, so that's a really good job. Anyway, they uh, on the next day, they um, managed to find a car and uh, drive down to my place, and uh, we had a lovely afternoon uh, uh, sitting, chatting over a, a few beers and uh, a charcuterie. Is that the right word? I never yes. know quite how to pronounce that. I think that's right. Of... Uh, Sliced meats and um, cheeses mm, and nice that. bread. Mm -hmm. uh, very pleasant. And uh, then uh, I took him out to a local pub and um, there's Steph munching away, trying to get some carbs down her uh, as uh, at our local pub, the deer's hunt, very nice. So uh, that was very uh, lovely to see Steph again uh, and her friend Karen, uh, both delightful people and uh, Congratulations to both of you for uh, getting around the uh, marathon without a problem. Uh, the only other thing I was going to mention is I I was due to give a talk at um, the Aviation Society, um, TAS. Uh, they shortened their name to TAS at Manchester. Uh, but um, they uh, sadly <laughs> they managed to double book their venue uh, and uh, they the people they had booked their venue to, they couldn't cancel that. So they said, oh, would you mind giving your talk next year? <laughs> so I said, yeah, it's not a problem. Don't worry about it. Which was fine, actually, because uh, I'd already given one talk up there. Uh, so I was having to write a new one. And I was uh, thinking, oh, there's a bit of hard work involved in this. So uh, now I can shovel that to one side. <laughs> for a month Did you say, as long as you uh, double my speaking fee, Oh, absolutely, yes. I charge so much for these uh, <laughs> events. In fact, uh, the next one uh, I'm giving, uh, well, I, I'm going to be at White Waltham on the 20th of October, um, but that'll be an interview with um, a chap who's written a book about the uh, Folland Nat, which was a RAF trainer, jet trainer, when I went through uh, my training uh, and also flown by the Red Arrows. Uh, and uh, this fine chap, uh, Rick Peacock Edwards, RPE, uh, was one of uh, my instructors uh, when I went through uh, Valley as a student on the NAT. He's uh, written a book about the NAT, so uh, that's uh, fascinating. Where I, Neville and I are interviewing him on the 20th of October at White Waltham, but uh, not this, you know, we're going to be busy doing filming and stuff, so. Probably not ideal for a, 
uh, a meetup, but uh, you never know. Uh, we might have time for a coffee if someone, you know, happens to be around. Um, and the next uh, event then is um, uh, the uh, Chatham Giving at Brooklands. I don't know if you, uh, those of you who were part of, I know certainly Liz was. Well, Jeff, you came to it. The um, PTUK's mm -hmm. 300th or 200th? 400th. 400th, was yeah. it? Yep. Are you sure they're that old? <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're catching At, up to uh, us. Absolutely. At the Brooklyn's uh, Aircraft Museum. Well, I'm giving a talk there to the Royal Aircraft, uh, Royal Aircraft Establishment. Um, Royal uh, RAES, Royal Aeronautical, Aeronautical Society. Uh, Aeronautical uh, Society? Society, that's it. I'm sorry. I that was uh, Liz helped me with Blank. <laughs> Thanks. Um, on the 16th of November, that's the kind of next event I'm giving. But He is in uh, demand. That's all that's on the cards for me for the moment. Um, indoor bowling is now de rigueur for me. So uh, I'm bowling uh, uh, in, at my old location, but now I'm the indoor club next next door to the outdoor club, and which is great fun. So uh, I'm still very busy, and I've got a dog shoot coming up. Not where I shoot dogs. I photograph dogs. <laughs> they got so mean. Um, they shoot <laughs> exactly. dogs, don't they? On Monday or Tuesday next week. So, you know, there's still a lot going on. I'm a very busy chap. You are very busy. Making me tired just hearing about all that stuff. <laughs> all what right. about well, you, thank Jeff? You. Nick, well, uh, well, Liz, um, I haven't really been doing a lot other than flying trips. Um, I, I've singing. been flying a lot of, uh, and singing. Yeah. On the, uh, on the weekends. And, uh, I have planned to, uh, do some, a lot of singing this upcoming weekend, because I think, uh, one of the musical ensembles, uh, the, um, one of the female voices, uh, has just, uh, contracted, uh, COVID. Ooh. Um, and, um, so you're going to be singing some female So you're parts? taking her place? Yeah. Yes, a, are you wearing a skirt? <laughs> wear appropriate wear skirt? undergarments that are very, very Absolutely, tight. So yes. I can sing up in the soprano range. No, yeah. I'm not going to be. appropriate. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I, yeah, I got a text from my uh, director, uh, this morning, uh, saying help, you know, she's panicking because now she's uh, basically playing text. at five masses this weekend. And it looks like I'll be, um, at all five so oh hopefully I'll have a voice left uh, by six o'clock on Sunday night, and uh, then off on another trip on Monday, uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, uh, again with uh, my favorite first officer Brent. And uh, we just finished a trip uh, this past Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. We were in. Uh, it was a tough trip, let me tell you. Uh, one flight on the first day to Jackson, Mississippi, and then a very long layover there. And uh, we, uh, where did we go? We got some good food there, I think. Uh, we went to a place called Martin's and had some had some nice food. Uh, then the next day, uh, it was a little bit tougher. Went back to Atlanta and then up to Chattanooga. <laughs> it's like a 25-minute flight. And uh, had wow, another they long... worked you so hard. I know. It's, and it, it was like, it was fun. We were laughing because we were kind of exhausted after that, thinking well, that's <laughs> almost twice as much flying today. <laughs> and then yesterday, Wednesday, uh, was oh, just about wiped us out. Um, we flew back from Chattanooga to Atlanta and then went down to Melbourne, Florida and back. Again, that's about an hour's flight time uh, each Whew. way. Yeah, I'm it was exhausted. tough, Liz. It was tough. And, uh, 
Yeah, unfortunately, we don't have too many of those kind of really, really nice trips. Uh, next trip, we're it's not too bad, but it's like a three-leg, two-leg, three-leg trip. I think we're going to be in Springfield, Missouri, and um, Chattanooga again on the uh, on the second night. So, uh, but I did pick up, and the reason why we're recording early today, and again, thank you for those who, uh, who are here live. Uh, we ended up, uh, starting a little bit earlier so that I could finish up the recording, get the bag packed, the uniform ready and out the door, uh, sign in time just before five o'clock this afternoon at Atlanta international. I picked up, um, a quick overnight going up to Knoxville, Tennessee and back and then up to Wichita or over to Wichita. But, uh, Nick, um, I'm, I won't be calling you because uh, we get in just before midnight your time. Uh, tonight. And then uh, I think another, it's like a late afternoon uh, sign in tomorrow afternoon. But anyway. He could take you flying at midnight and uh, cover two days. Oh yeah. Good point, Liz. Uh, Liz is suggesting that you take, I don't think I want to go flying tonight, Liz. uh, She's saying that you could could, uh, could pick me up and go flying uh, tonight. No, I'm going to be beat. Uh, (laughs) But uh, thanks for the suggestion, Liz. Um, anyway, so, uh, we'll be back, um, tomorrow night and then I'll be here for uh, Saturday and Sunday to do my singing and then back out again on Monday. So that's about. And editing the show. And editing the show. Yes, of course. Um, hopefully I'll be able to get, um, knock out a bunch of that tomorrow. Um, uh, when I'm at the hotel in Wichita, hopefully fingers crossed. All right. Um, that's pretty much it with me. The house is still for sale, and uh, we have uh, had people, you know, every now and then looking at it, uh, but nothing, no serious offers yet. So we'll see how that goes. We'll let you know. We've uh, heard from a couple of others here about what has been happening, you know, getting to know us. Uh, what about you, Rick? What have you been up oh, to? Oh, man, I've been up to a lot, actually. So uh, it's been a couple, it's been a little bit since I've been uh, on the show. Um, but uh, since then, I um, I went down to Miami. I had my, um, my recurrent training, which I have to... Um, go to every at least my airline for now we do it we do it every six months so you have to go uh, you do uh, recurrent training every six months and then you go through a check right a proficiency check every six months so we we do the sim twice a year uh, other airlines and that's going to be it's gonna it's coming up uh, soon at, at my outfit as well where we'll do it every uh, every nine months or so um i believe that's the case in in your in your outfit right uh, jeff i believe that is that. yeah that's what we've been doing for several years now yeah 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 so um went down to miami did uh, my recurrent uh, training which was it's it's interesting because it's always it's always good to um to um to get to fly the airplane and get to do things and be exposed to scenarios that uh, hopefully you never get to see in real life you know knocking wood here um, so, uh, did some of that, did some, some hydraulic failures, some hyd- electrical stuff did, um, this was, this one was really interesting here. We did a, um, a, uh, airspeed disagree, uh, exercise where it kind of creeps up on you and you have to be, um, you have to be, uh, ready to identify it. Um, now airspeed disagree is, is just that you have you know, the captain has his uh, airspeed indicator. The first officer has his or her airspeed indicator. And then you have your standby uh, instruments with its own airspeed indicator. And then on top of that, uh, you have uh, inertial airspeed, um, which is uh, 
airspeed as uh, sensed by your inertial reference system. Uh, and so you have that as well. And so once you, so basically what happened to us was, and this was really sneaky by the instructor, and I thought it was great. Uh, the way he did it is uh, he didn't tell us that he was going to give us uh, a, um, a airspeed and reliable exercise. He just said that there was going to be a, an instrumentation issue, which is great because um, back when I was a simulator instructor, which I did for, for a little while, I was as vague as I could during the briefing and things that it could be vague because I wanted to see the reaction and gauge the reaction time. That's and just use that, me. And, <laughs> and use that as a as a as a as a teaching tool right and so uh it was it was basically just that so everything was working fine we we're going on the descent uh approaching seattle i forget what approach it was and uh all of a sudden as we keep losing altitude um the the um the airspeed kept um what was it the airspeed kept uh kept dropping yeah that's what it was it kept dropping and so here i am you know the auto throttle is having trouble maintaining speed. So disconnect the auto throttle, you know, trying to give it a little power to, uh, which is normal. It happens sometimes because uh, you're, you're basically the, 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 your speed control and your path control is based on your winds aloft, which is why it's important to have, you know, um, up to date winds so that the, um, the vertical portion of the automatic flight director system and the flight management computer can provide you a, an accurate descent path and speed control and all that. And so, we're coming down and then we just couldn't get a hold of the speed. And I'm like, what the heck is going on here with the speed? And so I look at my airspeed, I look at the standby and then I look at the inertial ground speed there and I'm going, Oh, oh and first thing that, yeah. And then the first thing that came to mind was that Aero Peru accident back in 19, I think it was 97. It was a whole lot of a 757. Uh, taken off, it took off from Lima, Peru, going down to Santiago, Chile, and then they had just washed the airplane, and they had covered the uh, static ports with um, metallic tape. And so the captain that did the, the walk around that evening, uh, he wouldn't, he, he didn't catch it, and so they took Figures. off. That. Exactly, <laughs> <laughs> they took off like that, and then uh, they weren't able to uh, to figure out what was going on. And then, you know, sadly, uh, everybody lost their life on that one. And so I remember that. I was like, huh. So this is not making sense. I'm, I'm, uh, I've got the thrust levers at idle. I've got a little bit of speed breakout, but the speed keeps going up. And then I'm looking at my, at my ground speed. I'm going, uh, okay, I got this. Yeah. Look, at the, look at the FOs. The FOs is kind of wobbly as well. I'm like, okay. So you go from there, you, you, you pull out the checklist. Obviously, you declare an emergency. You request a block of airspace uh, so you, you can work the problem out, work the procedure, and you come back around and you land. And so I uh, did that. And that was, that was, that was an eye-opener. It was, it was good because it, it, really, uh, it really tells you and shows you that you have things in your airplane that are always going to work. One is your pitch. Two is your power setting. Three is your inertial ground speed. And four, and the one that always uh, people forget about, is your radial altimeter. Your radial altimeter is always there. You may not have barometric altimeter uh, because if, it's, uh, if, you, if you have some kind of air, data, uh, air data problem, your barometric altimeter might be compromised as well. But your radial altimeter, which is basically like a sonar, you know, as long as you're south of 2,500 feet, it's going to be there. So, yeah. So work that low for that to work. Well, yeah, that's true. Or, but 
you're going to have to land eventually, right? So exactly right. You haven't crashed by now. So and, uh, and 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 again and again, you're you're it, the the radial altimeter only really works if you're if you're flying over flat terrain, you know, because this yeah. you know you come down you know, through twenty five hundred feet. Um, hopefully you have. Uh, that's why a certain approach plates say RA not authorized because the the I guess the ground is wavy and it's not an accurate uh, pre- right. um, you know indication of where you're out there. But anyway, we worked we worked it out, came back around, landed no problem. So that was nice. Did that um, after my uh, my trip in Miami. Uh, I did my medical. Stopped by, saw the doctor. Turns out I uh, I still can see, I still can hear, and I still uh, got my heart going. So that's always nice to hear. And then after that, uh, went over to uh, Cincinnati, uh, stayed in Cincinnati for a couple of days. Um, it was uh, in the middle of uh, Oktoberfest there, so apparently Cincinnati has the biggest Oktoberfest in the country. So oh, wow, lots, yeah, lots of Germans, lots of Germans up there, absolutely. And so uh, that was nice. Um, uh, spent a couple of days up there, did the Oktoberfest thing, had a couple of beers. That was great. And then uh, I was supposed to go to uh, Leipzig and uh, that fell through. So they sent me to Stockton instead. <laughs> so I spent, same. Uh, yeah, same thing. Beautiful place, Stockton. Um, spent a couple of days in Stockton there doing my uh, my mandated rest. Uh, it, it was interesting. It, it kind of worked out because um, uh, usually when you land into Stockton, you land just about anything in california you always land to the west and so this one time uh winds kind of shifted and uh, i got to fly a uh a a gps approach uh to uh one one i think it was yeah runway one one so we landed to the east which is nice you get to kind of practice the the, the procedure of, of, of how to fly a, a gps approach which is you, you don't really get to do that much unless you have to in situations like thanks so did that <laughs> It's very. I mean, it's 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 a lot of things involved there because you have yeah. to select the. Uh, you have to make sure the autopilot's in the correct mode. You have to you know press the correct uh, uh, the, the 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 right button in the right sequence and make sure that you're there to catch the speed and select the correct speed and make sure everything is in where it needs to be and and uh, a lot of times these uh, GPS approaches. I mean, they're very accurate. At least the the vertical portion of it is very very accurate. <laughs> Not lateral <laughs> lateral lateral wise. Eh, it's a little yeah so that's all i have in my airplane is the lateral we're not allowed to do the uh lpv stuff so you don't okay non-precision then not only is it non-precision in the vertical but as you just mentioned the <laughs> the lateral i mean what a piece of junk I mean, <laughs> I, if we ever go into a place and they're talking about like uh, the uh, ils glide soap out or rnav and like seems like most people are saying well we'll take the we'll do the rnav I'm thinking, no tell them we'll do the localizer only because at least i'll look out the window and i'll see and the runway and the, and the run and will be right there but, yeah Otherwise, who knows what you're going to see with this? And that might be, you know, just my airplane. <laughs> it's an older version of the yeah. GPS systems and stuff like that. But I do not like RNAV approaches. I know. I know. It's, and it's interesting yeah. because, well, you, you do have to keep in mind, though, that uh, that uh, sometimes your the final approach course may not be the same as a runway course. And as, as long mm. as you're inside of 15 miles, because remember, it's 15 miles in a GPS approach for straight-in minimums and 30, uh, sorry, 15 degrees mm-hmm. uh, uh, for straight-in minimums on GPS and 30 degrees for straight-in minimums on 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 VOR and localizer and all that. Otherwise, outside of that, you have circuit land minimums. Um, so sometimes, and 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 I I think I noticed this in, in Stockton because then the other day 
I did a visual approach into one at center in Cincinnati, actually coming back from Stockton to Cincinnati because the, uh, the ILS and one at center was out. And so they were flying the visual and, you know, visual is fine, but if I can mm-hmm. use something to, you know, guide me right. laterally and vertically, you know, why not do it? Underline approach. Yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, the, that, that final approach course was spot onto the runway. And so it, I guess okay. it changes. It, it varies from, from, from airport to airport. And I, I guess I'm, I'm have to look here at the iPad and I don't remember what the final approach course and the runway um, uh, track itself wasn't so. But anyway, did two of those, and that was great. And then uh, the day after, I think it was, or the day after that, uh, went over to Germany, to Leipzig. Uh, first time in three years, back to Germany. That was nice, you know, post-COVID and all that. Uh, place is pretty much back to back to normal. Uh, Oktoberfest there as well. So uh, instead of, uh, instead of uh, spending my 32 uh, hours of rest and... Uh, Leipzig, I did it in uh, Stockton, but hey, I still, I still, I still got to spend an afternoon there. Uh, had uh, flew with a with a very nice crew, uh, FO and uh, two FOs, and, uh, and and myself. So we went out uh, to the uh, town square, had a couple beers, and just kind of people watched a little bit, and uh, and that was that. And then on the way back, I flew back to Cincinnati. Uh, ten hours and forty five minute. Uh, Flight time, no block time. Sorry, ten forty-five block, and uh, I uh, I remember why I don't fly at all anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, Louise, oh, I tell you, I flew to uh, from Atlanta to Tulsa. Uh, my last trip, it felt like I was going like transcontinental. Mm-hmm. It was only like a one hour and thirty-seven minute flight. I'm <laughs> <laughs> thinking, oh. wow, are we ever going to get there? <laughs> I'm sorry. I tell you, that that really 10 hours, 10 hours, 45 minutes, man. Yeah. It was, it was I, but at least it was, it was, it was nice going, going across because, uh, so on the way over, we got to see, uh, we got to see the, the Northern lights, which was, uh, it was, Ooh, uh, nice. it was my first officer's first time. Well, one of my two FOs for his first time seeing the Northern lights. And it's kind of interesting because if you, if you don't know what you're looking for at, at first, when they first show up, you, it, it kind of looks like, like, um, you know, like, like a, city in the distance out in the, in the horizon and then they get brighter and brighter and brighter uh so that was kind of nice so you got to see him for the first time and then on the way back we uh we came uh back on a random route uh we didn't actually fly uh, an oceanic track um we came uh to the north of the of the ots um because apparently there was um a jet uh between 32 and 42,000 feet uh just off the coast of canada there um with a uh uh, severe turbulence uh, predicted there, and so we had to kind of deal with that. And we were a, a little not tight on the field, but we did. Uh, we we flew with what's called a a, a redispatch flight plan, which we've talked about in the past. Uh, basically, instead of having to take ten percent of the um of the re- of of the fuel for the entire trip, you basically take ten percent of the fuel required for your point of redispatch to your destination, which allows you to carry all that extra uh, weight and payload versus having to, you know, take, take the fuel out for a ride. And so uh, we were not tight on the fuel, but, um, but you also, you also have to keep in mind that if you get to your point of redispatch and you don't have the fuel required to continue on to your destination that you have to, you know, put down at your uh, original, because you're, you're only, you're only, so for example, so Leipzig to Cincinnati was a flight, but we were only dispatched to go from Leipzig to New York. If we got to the point of redispatch with enough fuel, then we were redispatched to Cincinnati from that point. If not, we put down in New York and refuel and go on. So, uh, so that was, uh, that was interesting. 
uh, land it, uh, no problem. <laughs> and we go to park the airplane. <laughs> and the entire place was, uh, uh, I had containers and ULDs and tractors and buses and all sorts of stuff all over my place, all over my, my, my parking spot. And, uh, and DHL ops goes, uh, so, uh, can you park it? I'm like, no, I can't. Cause, uh, there's uh, stuff all over the place and I can't, uh, I can't, I can't fit the airplane uh, in, you know, in, in the area given to me in my parking spot with all the stuff around me. So I waited an extra half hour for uh, everything to get, you know, cleaned up and taken and, and towed away and all that. Then we parked and that was it. And so um, the, the following day, no, that afternoon, uh, took a flight uh, from uh, Cincy to Phoenix and I've been here, uh, been here ever since uh, heading back out to uh, staying domestic this time, at least for the first uh, couple of days in my line. I'm flying what's called a secondary line, which is not quite reserved, but it's um, it's like, because um, I'm switching bases. I'm going from uh, Cincinnati. I'm going to Houston in November. And so uh, I'm, uh, really all I needed was a, a a footprint of days off required for, for some stuff going on here around the house. Uh, so I needed to be home from a certain day to a certain day so the only really line that had those days available was the line that i bit i was awarded so by flying a secondary line um i really don't know what i'm what, what i'm doing where i'm flying so all i know is that i go I know what I'm doing. yeah all i know is that i go from uh i do uh phoenix to portland tomorrow commercial and then i, I fly portland to baltimore baltimore to vegas and then they have me they show me commercialing from vegas to Cincy, my base to keep on going from there, but who knows if that's going to hold. Um, yeah, I'm out, uh, I'm out through, uh, through the 19th. So, um, that's going to be that looking forward to that. So, um, I have to pack my jacket cause, uh, you never know what they're going to send you. So, and it's starting to mm-hmm. weather's starting to turn, which is great. I love this time of year. It's my favorite time of year. So me too. So yeah, looking forward to that. Well, so nice that you were able to make it for our show this week. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's been a while. And I, I miss you guys. Really oh, we miss you too. Definitely. And, uh, the audience misses you. And, you know, anytime we can have you on, you know, yeah, every, every now and then it's great. We'll take so, what we can get from you. Yeah, we can take what we I can get. I love it. I love it. All right. Uh, cover art uh, for the uh, last show. It, this was awesome. I mean, you really uh, did a, an, um, you, yeah, you nailed it. Liz says. Uh, the pilot or the game of pilot life. So it's the game, the board game here in the U.S., so the, the game of life. Uh, many of those who uh, see this will recognize that, uh, that game. And uh, very, very clever stuff that he always, uh, he being Captain Nick, our, uh, our uh, creative artist extraordinaire on, the, on staff here. I, I especially love the way you did the uh, episode number, Nick. Yes. <laughs> um, at the bottom, because I, when I first saw it, I was looking over everything, ages eight plus, and then it says from five to 38 players. And I'm thinking, well, that's weird. That seems like a lot of players on a board game. 38. <laughs> and then, oh, wait a minute. 538. That's the episode number 538. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. So many, I love, instead of Hasbro, it's APG bro. That's mm. our game <laughs> division <laughs> at uh, APG. Oh That's- yeah, absolutely. We we uh, cost a lot of money buying that game division. Yeah, uh-huh. it did. But we should make it back with this edition of uh, <laughs> the game of Pilot Life, don't you think? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Wow. 
Anything, yeah. uh, any other interesting nuggets that we may have missed uh, on this? Well, uh, uh, there's a spin wheel, apparently. I, I know nothing about this game, mm-hmm. but it's got a spin wheel. So now you have trip bids, trip spin to win. Uh-huh. And uh, it did say um, kids have spoken now with careers chosen by kids. Uh, so, uh, of course, now it's the, our kids are our FOs, really, aren't they? <laughs> so FOs have spoken. Yes. And uh, I managed to get on those player cards there a few, like APG Podcaster, because it had a microphone oh, on yeah. that one. Yeah. And airline, airline pilot. pilot uh, with Because it had a flight bag. Uh-huh. And then Airbus Pilot, because it were, had a game console. I love um, it. So uh, I, I I just had fun playing with it. I didn't understand what the game meant. <laughs> I, I managed to squeeze an airplane in there and uh, uh-huh. change one of the signposts to an airport signpost and uh, managed to squeeze the APG logo in the top left corner. Um, oh, I see And that. the yeah. price, $299, which I think is a fair price for a special um, one-off Edition, yeah. of game version collector's like item but, uh, i just thought it was perfect put caps uh airline pilots caps on some of the um i don't know what those the little signpost mannequin people yeah uh, but uh, I love other the than that adult oversight required <laughs> yes <laughs> definitely need adult oversight for sure and then i love yeah. the 50 percent uh on the mm-hmm. on the the money the little money, play yeah. money uh, that Yes, exactly. That I didn't have to change. That <laughs> was already oh, there. Excellent. Love it. There you go. So wow. that was, that that was great. It's a classic. Yeah, definitely a classic, Liz, for sure. All right. Excellent. And uh, that means it's time now for us to talk about our wonderful Coffee Fund Cadre or Coffee Bar Club by uh, playing the APG Java Jive. Jeff Smith. Johnny, how much more coffee? Go thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. I'm getting dizzy watching all the different uh, video things going on there. Anyway, uh, Coffee Fund, as I mentioned, that's your way to support the show financially if you have the resources to do that. And a couple different ways. One is called the Coffee Fund Classic Method, basically a PayPal donation page uh, used mostly, I think, for people who want to give uh, every now and then donations to the show. And we do have recurring uh, contributors as well using that mechanism. But uh, just like to mention one that we received from Mike Palladino. And I believe we have some feedback from him. We Hopefully do. we'll get to that today. So thank you, Mike, for uh, contributing to the show. And by the way, I just want to make sure you, you all know, you don't have to contribute to the show financially to get your feedback read on the show. <laughs> so just to be no, clear. No, they contribute to me directly. Yeah. So they, Oh, yes. They have to contribute to Liz directly, she says. Okay. Uh, and the other thing that we have is called Patreon. Uh, you can become a patron of the show via Patreon. And we have a couple of folks who joined us as patrons. A new producer, Peter Patz, and a new executive producer, Sam Dawson. Thank you very much for signing up to be patrons of the show. If you want to do the same, please head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did, and we will too. Hey, Jeff. 
Hey everybody, it's your main man Micah, and yes, there's a lot of background noise because I'm at Becky's Diner, a place that I think you've been to, Jeff, but not with me, but Captain Dana's been here with me, and Captain Craig has been here with me, and Terrific Tanya has been here with me, and today, Mark Van Ram is here with me. He came in on an ocean liner. No, not an airliner, an ocean liner, and I think this is the longest planned meetup that has ever, ever happened. Mark, welcome to Maine and to Becky's Diner, and it's so great to meet you. Thank you, Micah. I'm glad to be here. My first time ever in Maine, so I'm looking forward to seeing Portland today, Bar Harbor tomorrow, and then uh, two forts in Canada, and then back to New York. Well, you know, on Maine license plates, it does say vacation land, so you must be on vacation. Tell us a little bit about how long you've been planning this, and when was it that I got that email from you? Uh, I think you got the email in February, maybe. Um, I've been on vacation since I retired six years ago, so kind of just different trips. We don't call them vacations anymore. We call them trips, and... uh, we planned this one. I, it's a trip that my wife really wanted to go on because uh, she's in a Facebook crafting group, and there's about 70 of them on the ship. And uh, so she's crafting away, and I'm just tagging along for the, for the ride. Well, I'm so glad you did. And, you know, we talked a little bit about your history, and I mean, you're, all of our listeners have fascinating backgrounds, but yours is particularly interesting to me because you're a shipbuilder and you're a nuclear engineer. And you're wearing a hat, and that's how we got into the conversation. Tell us about the hat that you're wearing and how you ended up getting that particular hat. So I'm kind of a hat guy. I probably have 50 hats, one from every ship I've worked on, plus a bunch more. The one that I'm wearing today is from the George H.W. Bush CVN 77, and it's a plank owner hat, meaning I'm one of the original crew. Um, I wasn't actually in the Navy then. I was a, a test engineer, and I helped build the ship. And she's a gorgeous ship, and she was a birthday present to George H.W. Bush, who was alive when, when the planks were laid down. And it's just, it was so wonderful to hear some of the stories. And tell us a little bit about, because you, you cruised on her with your, was it grandson? Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. So I did, a, when he was 8, he's 20 now, 12 years ago, we did a friends and family one-day cruise. We went to... Uh, Got on early on the ship, well before sunrise, about 5 in the morning. Um, it was all day. They did an air show, launched three planes, did a bunch of supersonic passes. They had a rescue helicopter they launched and put a swimmer in the water and recovered him. And uh, it was just a great day. It was a long day for an 8-year-old, but it was a, something I don't think he'll never forget. So how did you get from shipbuilding... And all the background you have in shipbuilding and nuclear engineering to airplanes and the airline pilot guy. So I think, well, my dad was in the Navy during the Korean War, and he worked on airplanes. He always took us to uh, Moffett Field for, to see the Blue Angels when they were in town. Um, I kind of just came from that and uh, being around the San Francisco airport. And uh, I just always liked planes. Uh, I stumbled on podcasts uh, Actually, I think I found about Jeff during the Airplane Geeks podcast. I mentioned him, and I've been listening ever since. Shortly after he switched from the Catholic pilot to the uh, 
the airline pilot guy back when it was only 30 minutes. And uh, I remember all the controversy when it went to a much longer podcast. Some people liked it and some didn't, but I've gotten gotten used to a three-hour format, so it's all good. Yeah, that's how he got me, too. i got to blame the airplane geeks, and now I waste three hours in that chat room every week. But And that's where the phone shut down and everything went kerflooey, and we lost the rest of the recording. Tried to pick it up, but somehow or another, things were fouled up. Can you believe it? A technical glitch? I don't know what's going on. Where's Nev when you need him? But anyway... We spent the rest of the afternoon touring a little bit of Portland and South Portland. We drove out to Bug Light and the old Liberty shipyards. We uh, drove over to the airport and did some spotting, got a couple of photos, and what a great time. Mark's a terrific guy. And I really wish that we could have spent more time together. But yes, this meetup was planned since February, and it finally happened today. So thanks for having us here on the Airline Pilot Guy podcast. And this is your main man, Micah. Back to you in the studio, Jeff. Well, thank you, Micah. I'm on, right? Okay, good. (laughs) A lot of switches to make sure I have uh, pushed in the right direction. So thank you, uh, main man Micah. He is with us in our live audience as we're recording this on, uh, what day is today? Thursday. October 6th. October 6th. Um, So uh, thanks for the submission. And it was uh, great that you and Mark Van Ram could get together. And uh, yeah, so if you're out there and you do some sort of APG related uh, meetup, you don't have to have any of us on the APG actually there uh, to do it. So uh, please submit your, your stuff. I love that feedback and the pictures were great. That uh, lighthouse looked like a wedding cake. (laughs) It does. How amazing. Yeah. Uh, uh, Yeah. Perfect. Uh, Very nice. Yeah, and then I guess that one with uh, the ship in the background is the uh, the cruise that he was on, he and his wife were on. Oh, I thought that was just a new hat he was wearing. Well, that's <laughs> also, oh, you mean the, that, that big long thing in the <laughs> yeah. water? You thought yeah. that was a hat? Yeah. No, that's yeah. not. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So there we have our meetup. Thank you again, Micah, uh, for that, and Mark. And uh, now... I know you've all been waiting for it. It's time for some feedback. Captain, incoming message. Let's start off with this from Robert. While we cannot count how many times we have discussed the differences between Boeing and uh, Airbus, I don't recall much about engine manufacturers, so I thought I would ask some questions like, Are there some engines that were just not ready for prime time versus some that were the most reliable you can think of? Uh, I think these new LEAP, the L-E-A-P, engines are made by consortiums of manufacturers these days. But is this a better idea versus the solo manufacturers of the past? Where do engine technologies improve from here? I know there are orders being placed for short-range electrical or electric helicopter-like planes, but is that where the future of aviation is really headed? Just curious of any stories you might have to share. Thanks, as always, for taking my feedback. And that's Robert. Uh, used to be near the big chicken, but now he's over on the other side of town in Tucker, Georgia. Ah. Yeah. Um, so, first of all, um, I think m- many, if not, well, most of the engines being manufactured out there these days are in some kind of a consortium. 
Mm-hmm. Um, they're not just doing it on their own anymore. I think that they found that it's uh, the economies of scale and and having participate. I guess the uh, uh, the the financial uh, liability involved with being the sole manufacturer of an in, of an engine out there today is probably you know uh, probably a lot of risk. So having yeah. more than one company. You know, I'd say that. I mean, at, at least at least that would apply to the to the smaller type airplanes. You know, your yeah. your seven thirty seven maxes and your your three twenty uh, family uh, neo uh, aircraft and uh, your uh, this what's this new um, uh, Chinese uh, uh, airliner that just that was just certified the other day. Um, so yeah, all, all those. But uh, um, you know the well, big, the, big, big, heavy airplanes. You're talking about you know your triple seven X's and your your yeah. three fifty nine hundreds and one thousands and all. Uh, I believe those are still. Uh, I mean, I, so, uh, yeah, there was those still saying because you know, the triple seven X. It's it's the 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 GE ninety, the new version of the GE ninety engine, uh, the seven four seven dash eight, and then the seven eight dash eight dash nine and dash uh, ten. Those are GENX engines um, made exclusively by general electric uh, aviation and then on the on the airbus side of things you have your uh, your uh, your rolls royce um uh, trend variants and uh, and and others um i mean i'm, I'm not uh, up to date with um uh rolls royce production I've, in fact i've never flown i know you have jeff the 1011 had uh, rb211s yeah. but uh, so i want to say right now never mind uh, just scratch what i said before about the consortiums <laughs> um, we can jeff can you edit that out in post? yeah I'll do but i mean um, it's in a way it's true in a way it's true because your you know your leap engines and such are, are consortiums uh consortiums right. and and the the jet that you fly now you know the 717 the former uh md95 mm-hmm. uh, the engines are a consortium man it's, rolls it's, royce uh bmw, BMW. And some others i think and then exactly. even the uh md90 uh was using the v uh that's the uh, iae yeah, yeah. V twenty five hundred engines, V twenty five hundred, which, which again, is another the, uh, consortium. Yeah, which the uh, which the A three twenty did uh, mm-hmm. use. That was one of the variants that you, you that one you had, them, yeah. and uh, the other one was the uh, the CFM variant, which mm-hmm. uh, also seven thirty sevens. Yeah, the uh, yep. your your old um, you know eight seven hundreds eight hundreds. Your your I guess your NGs uh, CFM uh, uh, equipped there, um, but uh, as far as and and this I thought this was a this was a great question because it's true. I mean, we talk about you know Boeing versus Airbus. You know, we we know how that goes, and we know who comes out on top. <laughs> we don't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but as far as engines are concerned, uh, I, I I do have I do have a a, a favorite. Um, I've um, I've flown um, out of the big three. I've only flown Pratt Whitney and uh, General Electric. I've never flown Rolls Royce. Um, and out of the two, out of GE and Pratt and Whitney, I I prefer I prefer General Electric. I prefer GE. Hmm. Um, the airplanes that I've flown with GE engines are well the seven six, uh, two hundreds, three hundreds, the seven four dash four hundreds, the seven four dash eight. Uh, your Dreamlifter, no, those are Pratt and Whitney, and um and uh the triple seven at the g90-110 uh, which is the same engine as the g90-115 it's just that it's derated down to 110,000 pounds of thrust it's the same engine it's just an, it's just a software tweak that you do um and the reason why i like g better personally this is just me uh is because it's it's just it's just simpler um it it starts a lot quicker um and where this comes in really handy is i remember uh flying 
uh, Pratt and Whitney equipped seven six sevens uh, at uh, Line Airlines, um, you know, in the early two thousand um, and twenty tens. Um, and I remember starting up engines at the old Quito Airport. You know, the <laughs> midsummer day, they're nine thousand two hundred twenty three feet above mean sea level. <laughs> And you're trying to start this uh, this this Pratt Whitney engine, and it would just take forever. And you have to be really careful because um, you have a maximum um, starter duty cycle uh, that you have to keep an eye on, uh, which is five minutes. So you can't have the starter going for more than five minutes uh, from the moment you engaged and start the the starter uh, uh, to the moment the starter disengages and the air, and the engine is. Um, it can self-sustain um, its uh, its operation, and at uh, high altitude airports, uh, you got really really close to those five minutes. Um, and so, um, compare that to the GE. <laughs> GE is instantaneous. Now, Pratt Whitney's do run a lot cooler. Um, your standard uh, EGT exhaust gas temperature. At idle for a Pratt and Whitney engine is about 530 uh, uh, degrees uh, centigrade versus uh, about seven to 750 uh, degrees for a uh, for a GE engine. That's hot. So, yeah, they 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 uh, Pratt and Whitney does run a little a little cooler, which is which is nice. Um, and then uh, there's there's also different things, and this is this is this is. Uh, I guess uh, ancillary to the type of engine that you have, uh, GE um, uh, thrust reversers are pneumatic versus hydraulic on the Pratt and Whitney, and I feel like uh, your response time when you engage, when you request uh, or select thrust reverser on a GE engine, is quicker versus Pratt and Whitney. Pratt and Whitney is a, is a, a hydraulic, um, and it's interesting because on on your standard Pratt and Whitney. Uh, simulator. If you lose your left or right hydraulic system on a 767, you're going to lose one of the two reversers. Whereas on a 76 uh, G equipped, as long as you have normal uh, pneumatic pressure uh, across your ducts, you're going to have the thrust reversers uh, independent of uh, of uh, hydraulic system operation. Will you not have um, like a, a pneumatic uh, accumulator, like a backup? Uh, no, 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 no non not, not on not on these uh, on the. Well, the, the Pratt Whitney PW four thousands, which is what the seven sixes have, you don't have a uh, an accumulator. It's it's Gosh. strictly hydraulic. So if you lose if you lose your three thousand pounds per square inch of your either right or left hydraulic system, you're you're out for the count. You don't have hydro, you don't have a reverse thrust of that engine. Which uh, well, and also I think this is true. Um, a Pratt and Whitney, at least all the Pratt and Whitneys that I've ever flown, uh, you set your power based on exhaust pressure ratio ep exactly EP. your eper um, and then i guess on the uh, ge they use n1 n1 right? yeah and, and that's and that's and that adds on to the i guess to the ease of use and, and the simplicity yeah. of the of, of the operation on 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 the ge versus brent whitney now we're not you know being paid by ge to say any of this it's just my personal you know um, mm-hmm what i like better uh but it's it's interesting you know prent whitney as you said they use um uh epr exhaust pressure ratio and you basically have two probes you have a pt2 and a pt7 probe pt2 in the front pt7 in the back and uh all these probes do really is they compare the um the air pressure going into the engine versus the air pressure going outside uh, out the engine out the back 
and uh, the difference in pressure is translated into um, power output. Um, and so with the engine off, uh, EPER is one because the pressure in the front is the same as the pressure in the back. As soon as you start introducing a pressure differential between the front and the back, then you start um, uh, you start seeing uh, that EPER number go up. Um, and then uh, obviously if, it never gets to it never gets to 2.0 so you you never have twice the amount of air going out the or the flow of air going out the back that you do in the front but uh yeah, physics but, but exactly <laughs> but uh obviously you know the you know your 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 normal you know cruise eper numbers are around i don't know 1. Uh, 1. 1.3 to 1. 1.4 uh your uh Mm-hmm. Your takeoff uh, thrust uh, EPR uh, targets range from about uh, 1.5 to 1.7 or so. I know that uh, what I set my thrust levers to before we select takeoff thrust is uh, 1.1 EPR, which translates to about 70% N1 on a GE engine. Um, now, N1 is just a percentage of the rotational velocity of the fan, your N1 portion of the, the uh of the uh, of the turbo fan, so you have N1, which is um, your low uh, pressure compressor in the front, low pressure turbine in the back, and you have your N2, which is your high pressure compressor in the front and high pressure turbine in the back. Um, uh, all you really have is like a like a um, what's this instrument in the car, the tachometer, I guess, that uh, senses rotational velocity of the engine. Yeah, RPM um, too. Basically, yeah, yeah. so really all it is. It's just yeah. just just an RPM sensor, and then that is that uh, that is uh, routed by um, you know several. <laughs> it's just basically magic, really, and it shows up on your ICA screen there as a percentage of the, the maximum rotational velocity of the uh, of the fan. So yeah, on the airplane that I fly right now, we set um, one point two approximately. For you know, basically standing them straight up mm. and letting the engines accelerate and kind of stabilize before they engage right. the uh, auto throttle system, then it only goes up to one three, you know, one to one four usually at mm. the most. You know, you don't really see super high numbers there. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you have to keep in mind that uh, these these uh, C CF sixes and PW four thousands you're talking about. Uh, Five to one to six to one yeah. bypass ratios. Yeah, so yeah, you um, an engine that has a that high bypass bypass right. and bypass for, for the guys, bypass ratio is the uh, is the the ratio of the air that goes through the core of the engine versus the ratio of the air that goes around it and through the fan. So you have five times the amount of air going around the core of the engine versus what goes through it. So that's that's basically your bypass ratio. Well, now you know we've been talking about all these old technology engines, right? Um, mm-hmm. So far. Uh, the new kids on the block are mm. the uh, the new engine option uh, neos that we see a lot of uh, Airbuses and 737s using are either the CFM International Leap engine, which stands for Leading Edge Aviation Propulsion, uh, which is a high bypass turbofan uh, produced by CFM International and a joint venture, which uh, it's also a 50-50 joint venture between American GE Aviation and French Safran aircraft engines. And uh, so it's basically the successor of the very, very successful and popular GE CFM 56 and competes with the Pratt & Whitney PW1000G, Mm. our modern uh, narrow body aircraft. Uh, the, the one they were talking about there, the, uh, Pratt and Whitney, uh, version of the uh, new engine technology is what they call their geared turbofan, 
technology, uh, GTF, and it's a high bypass geared turbofan, which allows for uh, a direct mechanical gear linkage between the uh, the hot high spinning uh, compressor turbine sections of the engine to drive the uh, the fan portion. And mm -hmm. I guess that's supposed to be much more efficient, and they can actually uh, kind of slow down the rotation of the uh, the fan section because I get one of the limitations uh, I'm not an engine expert by the way uh, but one of the limitations I understand of those big fans that are producing most of the thrust in high bypass engines uh, the limiting factor is the the tip speed of the uh, blades as a uh, I guess as they reach purpose. supersonic yeah right. absolutely just just supersonic. like just like just like anything in in, in you know in in, um, in aerodynamics at least subsonic aerodynamics uh, you talk about um, when dealing with air as a compressible fluid which is not the case in supersonic aerodynamics um, you have um, uh, to contend with um, uh, the speed of sound and the shock-induced separation that comes uh, as a direct byproduct of that, and so as you were saying, and that's exactly right, Jeff. And you, but you're basically talking about, in essence, a an encased turboprop where mm -hmm. you have a a um, a, re a a reduction gear con directly connected, uh, connecting the 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 hot section of the engine to the fan itself. Allowing the fan to um, to spin at a way lower velocity, but still being able to provide uh, most of the most of the thrust, because that's that's really is the the, the beauty of of turbofan engines. The fact that uh, really the hot section of the engine is there to uh, keep the, the fan going. You really don't need it once the engine's stabilized and and is able to uh, sustain combustion by itself. Um, but but that is it, and that's you know, and and you look at these. I remember the first time I saw these, you know, funky looking um, uh, compressor blades was on the on the G ninety when I when I flew the triple seven, where you have um, uh, the geometry and the cord of the blade itself changes along it, uh, you know, along the span of it. Where um, I guess it's you all know, twisty. <laughs> yeah, it's all twisty because you know the. Uh, the um, the pressures and the local speed of sound uh, along the cord of the fan blade uh, differs uh, from place to place, and so you want to just just like you would, you know, sweep an air a, a wing back to um, I guess induce more span wise flow and delay the onset of your uh, your critical Mach number. You do the same with a with a a fan blade because it you in 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 essence all you really are doing is producing lift. Except you are, you know, your 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 lift vector is going forward instead of up. It's really it's really all it is. So uh, I just find it fascinating, and they just keep getting simpler and simpler and simpler, you know, and just lighter and lighter. And and the materials they use, ceramics and uh, all these um, really weird exotic uh, materials that they coat the uh, hot sections of the uh, of the of the turbine with, and it's just. Uh, and that's one of the issues they've been having, especially with the geared turbofan um, version of these new uh, engines, is that at first, because of all these new alloys and materials and ceramics and mm -hmm. uh, all kinds of stuff, that they um, they had to be very careful about how quickly uh, they warmed up or they came to uh, operating temperature, uh, and they they arrived at operating temperatures at 
at uh, different times. And that's no good. The thing was starting to wobble and bend, and, and they had you know to be what? Very it's careful. funny you say that because when I when I started flying the seven four eight um, with the uh, the new variant uh, variant of the GENX engine, we actually had a procedure uh, called the bowed rotor procedure, where you had to start the engines in a certain sequence, and you had to um, be very mindful. Well. All, all you really did is, is monitor because the um, the 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 74-8 has very advanced uh, not FADEX but EECs electronic engine uh, controls and and all you really do is you just select the start valve on the top there and then immediately after turn put the uh, the fuel control run uh, fuel control switch to the run position and then the EEC takes care of everything but you have to be very careful and look at the temperatures because if anything went outside of uh, parameters. Um, if the EEC didn't shut down the start automatically, you had to do it. Hmm. Um, and I can't remember off the top of my head what the procedure itself was or, or what it was that we were looking for, but it had to do with um, if you shut the engine down and you were going to restart it inside of, I think it was two hours or two and a half hours, you had to be really careful because the you had to make sure that the EEC would actually motor the engine longer than it otherwise would for the rotor to basically straighten itself out before the engine started because it would otherwise it would shake itself apart yeah wow. because of that so um and so yeah that was one of the problems the operators were having with these early versions of these engines um especially the i think the uh oh well it used to be the c series and now the uh airbus uh a220 was using mm -hmm. the uh geared turbofan and i mean engine start cycle was like taking forever you talked about you know, start cycle up there in keto i mean that was that would have been a like a very quick engine start it was like um i forgot like seven to ten minutes or wow. something i don't know like super long start times and some of these companies uh you know their schedule was based on really quick turnarounds and they were i think pushing it and they were having a lot of engine failures i'm not saying it was operator error that i'm uh, i'm thinking yeah the, it wasn't quite ready for prime time when they first came out and i think they've kind of done some software changes and they've also uh, changed some of the codings i believe on some of it the was, engine parts it, it was it was uh it was uh so the way they took care of that with the on the gnx and the 74-8 was it was a software patch to the ec mm -hmm. itself um starter was still pneumatic because we still used an apu of one hell of an APU because we could start uh, two at a time um, Ooh, on the nice. on the dash eight and and the triple seven the G nineties dash one tens that we had you could start them both at the same time but by SOP we started one by one. Uh, um, now on the seven eight seven if I remember correctly um, the you no longer have a pneumatic starter so you know you don't you no longer have to contend with with starter duty cycle um, because the starter on um, on at least the GENXs that I remember. Uh, was the 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 generator? So the generator doubled as a starter. Oh. So um, you, you you basically had once the once the uh, engines were started and and the and the uh, buses came online. Uh, the uh, the IDGs basically were just that integrated drive generators providing the electrical power to the different buses. But during the engine start, the IDG itself was the starter. So uh, hmm. starter duty cycle wasn't really an issue there. So. Um, but a lot of, and we could talk 
like a whole two or three hour show. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, but we don't want to do that because we have other uh, news items to cover and uh, feedback items. But um, Robert did ask, you know, like, okay, now uh, some of the newest engine technologies, not, you know, the traditional fossil fuel burning engine technology, mm. but these electric engines seem to be like the, the, the newest latest thing. The thing and of the it future. It seems huh? like that they are much, much simpler uh, types of engines. It's just, the, I guess the problem that we're having now is the energy density uh, required to, you know, use these electrically powered um, fans uh, to power large uh, jets, uh, transports, that kind of thing. But I think that as time goes on, we will probably start seeing these kind of things. But I guess my question is, are, are we going to be phasing out all these, you know, GE NXs and GE 90s and, you know, Pratt and Whitney geared turbofans? Are they all going to be, you know, in the, in the scrap heap uh, in 10, 20, 30 years? Or are we always going to have them around? What's, what's your know. feeling it's, about that? I, I think I, you know what? I don't – oh, I mean, watch me be wrong, which I am all the time. But I, I, how, do you, how do you produce – look 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 at a GE 90-115. You're talking about 115,000 pounds of thrust. Amazing. Downrated for, from a all-time maximum, I think it was, of 128,000 pounds of thrust. That's just – how do you do that with, 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 with a battery? Not only that, but from – I get, I get it that you know the 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 simplicity of a of of an electric engine is just that is very simple, very straightforward. Um, but then you think about it, so is a turbofan engine because, as I said earlier, you know it's you you get the you get the turbine going to the right speed to draw enough air across the compressor. And once the correct, uh, correct RPM is going, you know, you introduce a little bit of fuel and a flame and then it just, it just feeds itself. It's just as simple as it is. Well, yeah, just look at this. Right it goes. I, mean, I mean, how simple could it be? It, it, <laughs> well, it really, and, and, and it really is. I mean, you, you, you look at uh, it yes. from, you look at it from, from, from front to back, you have your four yeah. stages of, comp of four stages of combustion there. You have your compression, mm -hmm. you know, your, your, your intake compression, your combustion and your exhaust at the back there. And so uh, it's just from, I, I don't know. I don't know how you, how you make it any simpler than that. Uh, but then again, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm talking, I'm talking from, you know, about, Technology that's been there since uh, since the days of uh, of uh, Sir uh, Frank Whittle, uh, you know, you know, back in the back in the thirties and forties, and so this is this is time tested and tried and, and and proven to work, you know, flawlessly for for many 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 generations. So, mm -hmm. I'm um, what I wonder is how are electric engines going to be certified to fly ETOPS, for example? How do you do mm -hmm. that? Yeah. Um, so that's uh, so in 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 that regard, I think. And if, if you look at it from that point of view, through that through, through that uh, lens, there, it's going to take a little longer for the operational, I guess. Um, uh, yeah, for this, yeah, for for the for for the track record to establish mm -hmm. itself, for it to be trustworthy enough for for um, for these uh, governing agencies to um, grant engine. Uh, manufacturers like these, um, the authorization that uh, 
know, your 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 GEs and Pratt and Whitney's and Rolls Royce have had for for many 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 years. And remember, Etop's only been around for it's, it's been what thirty years, maybe 30, 35 years. Yeah. Uh, seven six seven was what yeah, seven six seven came out in eighty one because I was born in eighty one. So uh, uh, we we've only been flying on two engines across the Atlantic uh, for little over little under thirty years, maybe. And so, how do you do that on on electric? I don't I don't know. But well, I mean, know, that I that was, is the that is the way of the future. I was looking at uh, one of these videos of uh, one of the uh, EV toll um, companies uh, using electric technology. I believe it's a, I think it's a Swiss company or a German company, uh, mm. Lilium. Um, they have a interesting canard styled, um, very small uh, EVTOL, uh, VTOL. Um, that has thirty six. Um, electric engines, on thirty-six it. electric engines, thirty-six. Wow. So I guess yeah, maybe you know, like having a whole bunch of these lightweight electric uh, propulsion units will help to you know ensure its reliability, right? So yeah, but but stops, it, but it's you know. but but then again, it's not also it's not only propulsion units because I think that to me the propulsion units itself is just the it's, it's, it's the simple part of the equation. To me, is is the is the is the battery, the battery pack mm -hmm. to it. You mm. know, you, you have to contend with thermal runaway and oh, yeah. on the, fires. And yeah. uh, remember the 787 oh, was yeah. parked for, for exactly the first, what, year and a half, two years mm -hmm. after it came out because of battery problems. Yeah, and so grounded it for quite a while before. Well, the, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, um, and so how do you, how do you, how do you deal with a complex certification process with that kind of variable? And so I think that from that point of view, I don't, I don't think we're going to see, you know, you know, your, your, your run of the mill turbofan engines go mm -hmm. the way of the Dodo for at least another generation. Cause I just don't time. think, I don't think technology is there yet. I will nope. get there, but yeah. it's not there yet. Well, I think we're going to find out in the next uh, five, 10, 15, 20 years here. Let's see. It'll be interesting to see. I hope that they'll be able to figure it all out. Look, yeah, I'm, I have 24 years to go. If you know they keep it at sixty five, and I think I I don't think I'll fly an electric airplane in my yeah, in my I career. Doubt it. Yeah, so. it certainly sparked a lot of interest. Oh, oh absolutely! Bam! Wow, bam! <laughs> oh yeah, I like that. I love it. All right. Thanks, Thanks. Robert. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, thank you, Robert. Great, uh, great question. Hope we uh, hope we answered all of your questions. Wow. That was quite a discussion, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> it didn't seem like it, it took that long when we were, were recording no, it, it the not, other night. Right. <laughs> You're having too much fun. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Now, Jeff, where's that picture of the new boom? Oh, uh, Liz is asking about the picture of the uh, the new. Uh, there was some discussion well, in this, the. This, uh, of course, is the ultimate in the next generation of jet engine. It uh -huh. will have no moving parts whatsoever. Okay. So. This is Dyson's uh, proposed jet engine. Uh, I believe it's going to be now that Rolls Royce has pulled out of the Boom project. It's uh, it's going to take over. Ah. Um, so you know, I I think this is the future of jet engines. Quite honestly, the the Dyson. Uh, it, it'll be brilliant. I mean, it's very quiet as well. You can barely hear it. Well, you know, and also uh, you can tell in the picture here that the man behind the engine is also drying his hands. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. uh, so, yes. I was gonna say they must have they must have had to make some some sort of ping pong ball to uh, demonstrate that jet engine. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely, to yeah. To, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think the operational ones will have uh, little uh, white streamers coming out of the back, so you can see when it's mm. running. Yeah, yeah. And this is yeah. possibly a candidate for the uh, the supersonic, uh, the boom supersonic jet. You know? Absolutely. I think you just squirt a bit of petrol in the middle and off it goes. There you go. Um, yeah. Way to go. All right. Now, I, don't ask me what the next generation will be. I mean, I I think the they're reaching the edges of uh, current materials and technology. Uh, so, the, and what's more, the if they try and waste too much time trying to get more efficiencies out of the current engines they're gonna lose the race on r&d on what will replace them and you know it, rick may never fly an airplane that isn't conventionally powered but it's going to run out eventually and someone's going to have to come up with an idea otherwise you know uh, i i'm hoping by then we'll have Star Trek technology and will has transporter pads everywhere so we can just we don't need to fly we can just try yeah be transported uh, from country to country not mm -hmm. uh, flown very true okay Are why can't we have uh, rocket engines I mean what have they got mainly uh, liquid oxygen what else it, it depends on need? the particular technology but I think most of them use um, yeah liquid oxygen peroxide or something uh, hydrogen um i don't know i mean if you can get a, a saturn V to go powering into outer space surely you could in uh, have a jet uh, a rocket engine mm -hmm. that would work at a lower power and uh, just push you across the atlantic i think that so, um in the past i think the problem has been um being able to reuse the rocket engines without you know major overhauls but i think that uh elon musk and the spacex endeavor and other modern rocket builders out there rocket engine builders out there are showing now that uh these engines can be used uh much like like modern jet airliner engines can now yeah yeah, I, I'm. I guess you'll need pretty big fuel tanks. That's yeah, the only thing. That's the problem. Yeah, the volume of fuel. Yeah, and and infrastructure, right, to move mm. new materials. Yeah, but I mean, we had to build up our current infrastructure to be as efficient as it is. I mean, it, you've got to start small, and hopefully, um, you know, things will improve as more of these things are built and used. Whatever you decide to use, mm. um, whether it just be hydrogen power or fuel cells or whatever. Yeah. Mm, interesting. All right. Um, well, how about, you know, we haven't had any audio feedback in a while. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> uh, but, but this is special. Now we have a couple oh, it's of Jan, the man, <laughs> yeah, yes, Jan, the man Sears. Uh, he sent us in some audio feedback. And by the way, I'm uh, not sure we're going to be able to get to it today, but uh, Mike uh, sent us some audio feedback of a, of a tour. Uh, of the um, radar control and also the Philadelphia uh, air traffic uh, control tower at the Philadelphia airport. Next show for sure. And we're going to, we're going to have to put that one off, I believe for the next show. So Mike, if you're listening, um, just hang in there. Uh, we do appreciate you recording it. 
but we're going to. And everyone else's feedback. And everybody else's as well. Yes. Thanks, Liz. Um, But I think uh, we'll let's play Jan's uh, audio feedback and then uh, perhaps think about wrapping up today's show, make it a short show. So uh, uh, Jan wrote in, hi, all uh, wanted to give you the final update on my journey to become an airline pilot. It's been one of the most difficult adventures, but man, is it worth the stress and challenge. I hope these audio recordings inspire anyone to take a leap of faith and follow their heart. Please share my email with the audience. Thank you all for all you do for the aviation community. Warm regards, Jan the Man Sears, first officer. Let's have have a listen here. Hey, good morning, APG crew. Uh, Captain Jeff, Captain Nick, Steph. Liz, and the rest of the great people on the show and that listen to the show, Jan the Man here with an update on my uh, career changes. Uh, So last we left, I believe I was in Paris, uh, France, doing uh, simulator training uh, that the airline had sent me over there to do. Um, I passed that and ended up back in Denver to do um, what's called uh, LOFT, which is your line-oriented flight training. And that went very well um, after LOFT. Um, And what LOFT is really is just regular flying. So basically taking a plane from the gate to a destination, turning that plane around and coming back to generally the same destination. Um, so a turn, as we call it in the airline industry, and um, how all those things function uh, along the way, and that was uh, that went really well. Um, that followed by uh, my LOE, which is your line-oriented experience, or basically your ATP checkride uh, and your type rating, which for me was in the ERJ175, and uh, I passed that as well. So, um, some of the hardest things I've ever done in my life, um, being 54 years old and having done many things, um, some of them more difficult than others, but this one, uh, was, was hard for sure. Uh, being away from home, um, and the amount of energy and time and study and prep, uh, that went into it, um, was, uh, top of my list in my 54 years on the planet so um but that being said um i am 54 and i got it done so that means that other people too can get it done and i'm hoping uh hoping this story just inspires folks to to get out there and get it done so um so what happens now so i was assigned to san francisco as my base which is great because i live in the bay area um, I have a, about a five zero fifty minute commute to uh, SFO without traffic and about two to three hours with traffic. So, um, I, uh, began, uh, IOE, which is initial operating experience where you fly with a line check airman, um, for, um, non-specific amount of hours. It's mainly, um, how they feel, how comfortable you are with the aircraft and, um, so I got to do some flying out of Salt Lake, um, Missoula, Montana, and Spokane, and uh, Portland, and Seattle, and um, 
SFO and LAX and San Diego, um, all of those, most of which um, you are pilot flying because they really want to see your flying skills. Um, you do do some pilot monitoring because that's obviously a, a skill we have to have as well. But after completing roughly 35, 40 hours in the jet, um, I was signed off and did my line check and passed the line check. So where am I now? You know, it's uh, 5.53 in the morning and I'm uh, parked uh, off the side of the freeway in between my house and SFO because on a weekday, um, if there's one crash, that 50-minute commute turns into two hours. So I'm halfway. I'm on what's called reserve. Um, I'm on the R1 slot, which is uh, 0300 to 1500. And that uh, basically I'm waiting for the call. Uh, if someone calls out sick or a crew member doesn't make it in from a commuter flight, um, I would be the fill-in on that, on that leg. And reserve can last, uh, at least for the airline that I work for, anywhere from a month to six months. just depends on um, the volume of folks we have going on. So, um, yeah, so here I am, living the dream, LOL. <laughs> so... Um, but I'm really happy I made it um, this far. I had my last day with my real job on, on paper uh, last Friday. So I'm officially retired from my previous job um, with the Highway Patrol. And uh, that was almost 23 years there. So that was awesome to uh, wrap that up. Um, and now moving into a whole nother world. <laughs> so... A couple things I'll, I'll mention to you um, that I'm learning as I uh, have gone along. Um, the overnights were fun on IOE, and I look forward to more of those, um, especially the ones where you get in. You start early and you get in early, so you've got some time to, to trip around. Missoula, Montana was fun. Lots of hiking and running for the two overnights that we had back-to-back there. Um Food. I'm still learning the food thing. Um, I have a cooler. Um, things start off pretty cold in the beginning and get kind of luke cold by, toward the end. I, hoping that they don't get warm, but um, utilizing the hotel's actual freezer down in the lobby, like behind the scenes, versus using the not-so-great freezer in the room has been kind of a game changer for keeping the ice packs cold so on a four-day trip things stay chilly um and then just figuring out what kind of food to bring so that's been kind of a there's a science to it and i'm sorting that out um i overpacked (laughs) surprisingly i remember my ioe captain reaching for my luggage and uh, he said good lord man what do you got in here and uh i uh, you know so that that's also a science, you know, how many, how many pairs of shirts and socks and underwear. And, you know, I always plan for a week, seven days, and I think I've kind of overdone it. So kind of paring that stuff down to get the bag down to a a manageable weight has been kind of a challenge, but, um, it's all part of the program. So, um, yeah, let's see. Other than that, I, I wanted to mention, um, you know, the struggles that I had 
and and the triumph during training, you know, that all led to this very end point. Um, there were many times when I wanted to throw in the towel. You know, I'm I'm 54. I could retire. I don't have to do this job, and it was difficult and challenging. But that's really what kept me going. To be honest, is the challenge of the job and the challenge of learning a new aircraft coming from a piston single and going straight into a multi-engine jet um, was, uh, you know, pretty amazing. My IOE captain, you know, complimented me on my flying skills, my hand flying skills, because that's all I did for 5,200 hours uh, with the highway patrol. Um, And he said, you know, every time I'd give myself a hard time, he says, look, man, you got 30 hours in this jet. It's not, don't give yourself a bad time. You're learning. And yeah, so that was nice for, for him to say that. And, uh, you know, kept my perspective on what it was that I was, was trying to accomplish. So it was nice to have that kind of instruction. Um, I really think that line check airmen are in a mentorship position. You know, they not only want to make sure that you're a safe pilot, but they also, you know, have the ability to, to teach you. And that's a, that's a very important role. And I'm glad the airline is very picky about who they have as their line check airmen, because it's a, it's kind of a make or break scenario for a lot of folks. So, um, yeah, other than that, um, you know, don't ever let your age be a factor in, in choosing your dreams. You know, obviously this, this profession has a, a certain time window that you can operate in um you know me coming in at 54 gives me a solid 10 years in the airline industry which you know for most would be um you know a pretty solid uh short career so uh i'd say you know go for it as long as you have family support which is absolutely positively necessary and um you have the financial ability to do it because living off of training pay um, would be very challenging. And I knew a number of friends in class that struggled um, often with that. So, um, but with those things, you know, time, money, and motivation um, is all you really need to get it done with uh, with the family support. So, um, I suggest if it's something you're considering, um, definitely go for it. So. Um, it's been, you know, obviously uh, a roll of the dice to a certain extent. And, um, yeah, I had one line check airman tell me that guys my age or gals my age, um, about 35% of them make it through training. That's just his own um, internal meter. You know, there's no real, he doesn't have any accurate numbers, but just from his experience, mainly because of, uh, having been out of the educational realm um, for so long, generally, um, it can be a struggle. But as long as you are doing the work, you know, having good study routines, good study habits, I used everything from flashcards to Quizlet to uh, getting together with group sessions to um, recording things, listening to it while I was exercising, Um it it's uh you you figure out a way that that works so that you can retain the information because there is a ton of information to retain obviously but um the real learning comes flying the line 
um, you know, the, the airline gets you to a safe point and then the line flying, you really start to, to hone your, um, hone your craft. And I'm just in the beginning stages of that. I'm in the, uh, the steep climb of the learning curve. So, and I recognize that and I'm, I'm not hard on myself. I'm, I'm just soaking it up like a sponge. So, um, I hope, uh, I hope this pod, you know, my short little, um, voice memos have been a motivation for folks to, to maybe step out of their comfort zone and, uh, and do something that they've always wanted to do, but they thought maybe not was not possible, um, due to the fact that, uh, you know, it seemed unsurmountable, but, you know, if I can do it, um, anybody can do it. So, you know, get out there, um, get your hours, um, the 1500 hour rule is still in play as, um, you were talking about on the previous podcast. So it is, um, it's a struggle to get that time, but you know what, it's, it's one step at a time. And I never looked any further than where I was, you know, the last, you know, thing being my line check and IOE, I wasn't thinking about, Oh, what great trips I'm going to get to go on. It's just, you know, just one thing at a time. It's a process. So, um, keep trusting that process. And, uh, like I said before, um, I know Liz has my email, but if any of you have questions about the process, I'd be happy to share that information um, with y'all. So uh, here's to uh, blue skies and tailwinds and uh, you know, getting a different view from having been flying around at 5,500 feet for most of my career. Now I'm up at 3,500 feet. So it's a, the view is quite different from uh, that side of the cockpit. So um, take care, y'all, and any questions, please reach out. Um, and thanks, you guys, for everything that you do. Really appreciate you sharing my journey with everyone. So take care and uh, have a wonderful day. All right. Thank you, Jan, for taking the time for uh, to record that very detailed uh, wrap-up of your uh, latter part of your training and your IOE and some tips that you picked up and advice. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, some really nice stuff. And, uh, you know, it, it must be nice living in such a warm place where you need one of those cycling fans uh, keeping you cool while you give your <laughs> no, seriously, uh, great to hear uh, about your story. And, uh, you know, uh, it was lovely to uh, have known you in your previous life uh, and, um, you know, looking forward to finding out more about how you get on. It's quite a jump that you've made. So uh, congratulations for doing so well. Yeah, I guess the theme right there is uh, it's, it's, it's not impossible, but it's very difficult to teach an old dog new tricks. <laughs> so, oof, oof. And it really is. <laughs> I know. It, it, isn't it true, Nick? I mean, the older we get, uh, when you oh, go yeah. through a new training regime and learn a whole new airplane is like, uh, what? <laughs> well, particularly when later in life, the motivation isn't quite as strong. Yeah. That's true. That is true. All right. Well, what do you guys think about uh, perhaps wrapping up this show? And uh, oh, I don't know. A... I was dying to see that BOAC uh, airline. Were you? Film. Yeah. Well, I, could, I could play that if you want, but we were only going to play just a little snippet of it. Um, oh, that's okay. That's all I need. <laughs> okay. Well, then uh, I, I think he's being serious. So, uh... I think he is. No, I do. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see. That's number five. Uh, Alan, 
uh, sent this in, uh, 1970s BOAC Airlines promotional film, Airline Pilot. You know what BOAC stands for? British Overseas... Airways, uh, Airways Corporation. Airways yes, Corporation. Better on a Camel. What is it? Better on a Camel. Better on a Camel. Okay. <laughs> what? What's better on a Camel? <laughs> uh, traveling. Oh, Okay. Well, let's uh, take a little uh, a little glance. That's like little... what? What does Lufthansa stand for? Uh, don't know. Let us f the hosties and not tell anybody. Oh no! Oh my! <laughs> let's let, let's play this uh, video uh, quickly yeah, before he says right anything else. Let us f all the hosties the and right. not tell anyone. First officer on the left. First officer on the left. Pilot behind. Ratcliffe, do you know him? Well, that's because he's only got two stripes. <laughs> oh, my God, here comes Scroggins. Scroggins has got one stripe. You can barely see it. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Here comes grey-haired Lancaster pilot. Hello, Scroggins. Sit in the back and shut up. <laughs> How did you get on this film? <laughs> That's right, right. yes. No, they haven't. Yes. Who's done all the work? Delhi, but you leave it at Bahrain. Spend a night there, then on to Bombay in another aircraft. Yes. Scroggins, get my suitcase. <laughs> They're walking out the door of the uh, flight planning room. And oh, the captain I'm just slams let that it all bang you in the face. <laughs> <laughs> the captain checks all the data which has been prepared for him. Yes. Great CRM here. Don't touch my hat, Scroggins. What's the weather like? What's the weather like? Ah, shut up. I'll, yes. Only I have to know. Beirut's all right. You want me to tell you it's here? <laughs> weather en route. It all looks fairly straightforward, doesn't it? Uh huh. Wind speeds and directions. Visibility. Runway conditions. He looks at the all-up weight. Oh, be quiet. You're just a woman. how much fuel to take. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we take 57,000 oh load sheet off. Or 57,000 um, load sheet. Piece by piece, you build up a complete mental picture of the journey before you go out to the aircraft. Then we'll get out to the airplane. I'll take Steve out and start the checks going. Yes, I'll be yes I don't want minutes. to do the walk around. <laughs> Especially there. Uh-oh. 50 minutes to take off. Looks a little... Uh, uh oh, it's a VC-10. Less than an hour before this aircraft, with 112 passengers, will be on its way to India. <laughs> when you're a Big first officer, like that. you've been Four damned for engines, 112 years. passengers. Today's flight probably <laughs> won't seem much different from dozens of others. But when you're just going out for the first time as the third pilot of a VC-10, then it is different. It's something you've spent almost two years working up to. Okay, so yeah, hey, how's that for a tease? Bloody <laughs> <laughs> yeah. marvelous! Thank you, Alan, for pointing us uh, pointing that out to us. Uh, that was from what, Periscope Films, I think. Hopefully, they won't sue us uh, for playing a little <laughs> excerpt there. But uh, anyway, we just wanted to send a whole bunch of audience their way to watch. Actually, they have a whole bunch of really, really good old films um i was just watching one in fact a couple of days ago uh the uh pan am clippers and flying from san francisco to hawaii and guam and beyond uh pretty neat i think uh, i would have loved flying 
the flying boats back in those days. Oh God, yes, those that would have been fantastic. Mm-hmm. Particularly since once you got off, you know, you the company couldn't really stop you from doing anything. You could do whatever you damn like because no <laughs> one had a clue what you were getting up to. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I loved about the uh, the, the the video with the. Uh, with the uh, Pan Am Clipper, they were boarding a uh, Boeing uh, 314, right? 314? Yeah, I, I think, think so. Flying yeah. boat. And uh, that was a big Boeing. So this thing is in the water. It's at the dock, and all the engines are running. And then all of a sudden, the crew kind of marches out, you know, in two by two by two by two. Um, to the And I'm thinking, wow, somebody is already out there. I guess the engineers already took care of starting everything up and checking everything out before the crew even shows up to the airplane. I think that's nice. Nice and warm. Yeah. yeah and then after it. that, then you see all the passengers coming, coming in and they're all like grabbing onto their hats uh, to keep them from flying off. Anyway, uh, pretty neat. The, the thought of flying those aircraft around Africa, can you imagine it going up and down the coast and into the big lakes over mm. the, 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 the great plains and seeing all the wildlife? Cause you're only a few thousand feet. Yeah. It was like, Low flying the whole mm-hmm. way. Yeah, I think the between fantastic uh, between San Francisco and Hawaii, I think it was like eight thousand feet is what they yes. were cruising <laughs> out. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Anyway, those were the days. Well, thank you again, Alan, for uh, sending us uh, that little uh, link to the uh, film about BOAC. And if you want to watch the rest of it, it'll be in the show notes. That puts us at the wrap up point for episode five. 39. And uh, we always like to tell you or point you to our website, which is airlinepilotguide.com, where you'll find all kinds of stuff regarding the crew and the community and the community calendar and uh, merchandise and uh, expanded information about the uh, plane tales and so much more. So please check that out. And then we're also on social media or what I like to call incorrectly and badly uh, social meds. So if you're uh, going to uh, send us in any feedback via email, then feedback at airlinepilotguide.com. And also, if you want to send anything to us individually, you can just replace uh, feedback with our names, Nick or Jeff or Liz or whatever. So that's good. Whatever works email. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I don't know. What does Nick get? Because I was going to say, any angry feedback you have for me, definitely send it to Nick at com. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, so there always also, I'm offended at. No, mine is just Camacho. At, oh, okay, uh, Camacho. Airline, Pilot gotcha. Uh, okay. Yeah. So if, you, if you're a Facebooker, then uh, look for Airline Pilot Guy, all one word, and just type that into the search engine. If you're a Twitterer, then um, at APG Crew, which is almost as good as if you're an Instagrammer, which is without the at, just APG Crew. Not much goes on Instagram. Steph puts some stuff there, and I put the artwork in there. But uh, we're not great big Instagrammers. No, not not a huge presence there for us. But I mean, you you can only you only have so many hours in a day, right? Yeah, exactly right. There's a few Christmas presents, but uh, yeah. All right, and uh, let's see. Let's see if a Hillel can. Uh... Fire in the hole! Whoa! I, whoa. <laughs> oh, well, maybe, maybe he's a little again. bit busy. 
I okay. thought you had the house all cleaned up for viewings. <laughs> and now you're yeah, making a I'm mess gonna, of it. I'm going to have Air to pressure. spend some time uh, before I head yeah, out the door. Scrubbing the loo again. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know what? I uh, Fortunately, since he's a little bit busy, I'm going to go ahead and play this recorded uh, bit from uh, Hillel regarding Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha, Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Jeff, this is my private time. I know. That's that's why we did Bob you, okay? Right. <laughs> uh, let's see. We'd also like to uh, a big shout out to Liz for all the hard work that she does each Way and every show and in between. Liz. And oh, it's amazing. Well, thank this you. This is great. I have a whole new show ready because we didn't cover much. I'm happy. <laughs> ah, that's why you're encouraging me to stop the show. Uh, ah, I guess. I no, no, I just don't want you to be late. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I've uh, just got to finish the plane town. All right. Very good. And uh, with that, we're uh, hoping that you'll be with us again the next time we record, whenever that's going to be, sometime next week, uh, I'm assuming. And uh, thanks for telling everybody, all the kids, about uh, the show and uh, your reviews on iTunes or wherever reviews are, are done out there. We do appreciate that as well. And until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care. And God bless. Bye, everybody. See you next time. Ta-ta. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day. Such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America oh, Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy fall I got no friends Cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline